Hello and welcome to the Jeffrey Podcast. My name is Gordon and I'm here with my brother John. Hello. And this is a podcast about music. We'll talk through a band's career, ranking the albums as we go and picking our favourite tracks from them. You can find us on social media, the usual ones, Facebook and what are the other ones? Instagram. Twitter. And Twitter. That's it. I knew I'd remember them. So today we're doing Rush and you're the big Rush fan, John. So how, how did you first find Rush? Um, I think as I was kind of breaking free of my childhood infatuation with Adam and the Ants and looking for new music to listen to, everybody who was cool, anyone who was anyone at school, was really into this band called Rush, which I'd never heard of, didn't know much about. So I decided I was going to like them as well. And this was just as kind of between Signals and Grace Under Pressure. It was around that time. So the first album I got was Signals, and I sort of went backwards from there. And I got really into them. I just, I, I, you know, they genuinely clicked. I really liked them and, uh, you know, went backwards through their albums. And then obviously as the 80s albums came out, went forwards through the 80s ones at the same time. How about you? I found them from hearing you play them, I think, and listening to some of your records. And I largely concentrated, I think, basically on 2112 and Hemispheres. They're two pretty good ones, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, and some of the 80s sort of poppy stuff like sort of spirit of radio and things like that so i know some of it or I knew some of it very well and other bits of it not well at all it does seem to be quite random what i was listening to out of out of your collection basically yeah, my collection was complete up, up to whatever point of time you were at at that moment i didn't stop collecting rush albums until i think roll the bones was the last one that i bought and then I did stop collecting them at that point in the 90s. But up until the time when you would have been raiding my record collection, then they would have been a complete collection, or, or or I was completing it at the time. Yeah, I think so. I definitely remember you having Presto, so I think we're up, up to Presto, definitely. I, I did have Presto, yes. Yeah, but that would have been later. But yeah, as I said, I was just listening to bits and pieces, so I really liked some of it, and I used to just cherry-pick what I found and, and really liked. And some of it, like I think A Farewell to Kings, I... I Obviously, I've listened to that for this, and I just don't remember listening to it at all. It's funny, it's an album that kind of passed me by a little bit as well. I mean, I did, I, as I said, I had them all, listened to them all, but obviously you do spend more time with one than another. And mm. yeah, Farewell to Kings was one that I kind of glossed over as well, probably similarly drawn to the ones either side, 2112 and Hemispheres. So yeah, I, I've given that a lot more time in preparation for this. And we should say at the moment, we've only, we're only doing part one. So we're only doing up to and including hemispheres. We're doing the seventies. So we have read books, we've numerous books, and listened to all the albums lots and lots of times, but only up until hemispheres at this point in time. So that might need that might might be re- irrelevant because it might not matter, but it might be relevant because we might say something that we later contradict when we've read more and done more. That's the reason I need to say that now. So at this point for this section of the podcast, what what have you read? I have read a Martin Popoff book. Martin Popoff seems to be the sort of big expert. I read his, so far, I'm going to read them all, but so far I've read his first one called Anthem, which is about, from the very beginnings of the band, all all the way up to and including Hemispheres. And I also read Neil Peart's book, which is like a travelogue of when they were on the R30 tour. So it's called Roadshow. So he's going around on his motorbike following the uh, following the R30 tour around the US, Canada, and and, and then Europe. And how was that? Well, it was it, it. 
it's an interesting book. You know, I, I like travel, so that was quite nice. I like the idea of, a, you know, following a rock star around. I like the sort of, I'm quite drawn to the freedom of being on a motorbike and all that kind of stuff. But I have to say, I, I was quite disappointed because you find out precious little about what it's like being a rock star on tour. And you just find out what happened to Neil Peart as he drove from Florida up to Atlanta or whatever, trying to go into some national parks and get a stamp in a passport, uh, you know, and, and you find out about his relationship with his co-rider and stuff like that, or, you know, a, a, an incident that happened with a fan here or there. And, and, and you really get the idea of here's somebody who's quite weary of being a rock star, weary of being a, well, he's not interested in being a rock star from the fame point of view, but weary of being a musician, weary of touring. They're sort of counting down the days to the sort of end of the tour, signalling to each other on stage, only five more to go. And so it's in a sense, it's sort of slightly disappointing because you sort of think that this guy's really not quite enjoying himself. And I don't know, it, it, it sort of, and you don't get much of a view of what it's like being that musician in that, in that position. But you do get a, a real view of the hierarchy involved, you know, just how much the stars on stage, just how much they are really kind of you know held in such regard by the people they work for you do kind of get this very hierarchical feeling from it not that he's enforcing a hierarchy i don't mean it in that way but just the stars are the stars and you know even a band like rush which aren't you know justin bieber or anything do you mean in a good way so like as in they are highly respected or just the fact that they're the talent and so it's i I think i think i mean it in a just neutral way in this sense i mean they treat their staff as far as i can tell extremely well they are very, very nice people, very respectful. I, I, I certainly don't mean it in any negative sense in the, in the way you're implying there, like I'm where the talent, you're not. It wasn't in that sense. I think it's just an observation that they are who they are. Other people aren't who they are. And they're very nice about it, but it's just inescapable. And that really came through, and I'd never really thought about that before. It seems obvious now, but I'd never really thought about it. I read or have started reading album by album, which is by Martin Popoff. Again, there he is again. Yeah, and I also bought um, a DVD called The Rise of Kings, which is Rush 1968 to 1981, which is a documentary, which has obviously clips and stuff and interviews with various people. A large interview with Martin Popoff, who seems to be... There he is again. <laughs> the, the, he's obviously the go-to guy. and obviously He doesn't, it, he doesn't pop off, does he? he no, pops very on. clever. <laughs> And obviously, it's his books as well that's, that have just come out that you've started reading that kind of inspired the format trying here, sort of recording in, in three different sections for the 80s, 70s, 80s, and, and the rest. So we'll see if it works. Yeah, I mean, I also watched a couple of documentaries as well. There's The Boys from Brazil, and then there's The Beyond the Lighted Stage. So there's those two as well I've watched, and of course, countless just interviews, um, including some very recent ones since Neil Peart's death as well with Alex Lifeson and to have watched quite a lot of uh, interviews as well so I think we've got a reasonable amount of stuff to go on here yes I have watched a bit on YouTube as well I've I've tried to keep it 70s relevant so far and then obviously when we go back away and do the 80s I'll I'll try and stick to the 80s stuff and and see how it how it goes there is something about the, the who they are now though which is I think so much more engaging than who they were then because obviously they're older now they're in the 60s and you know they're just more much more relaxed and, and they're just having a laugh and I think they've only really just been having a laugh you know obviously apart from the the not remotely funny incidents that happened um, which we'll get to but they just seem a lot more relaxed and a lot more just you know we're just people that play music we're not whereas in the 70s it always felt like they were 
you know, under pressure to be rock stars a bit more. Yeah, well, there's a, I guess there's pressure to succeed as well because until certainly until twenty one twelve, though, you know, they're pretty shaky. Yeah, it was they were on shaky ground, weren't they? So yeah, and and financially, not until you know, really getting on to kind of permanent waves beyond what we're talking about in this section, they weren't really sort of financially that stable until they were getting on to permanent waves, moving picture signals era. Which yeah. I always found quite surprising, so I just assumed they were rolling in it from pretty much the beginning, but they absolutely weren't. Yeah, I mean the, the things I've seen and watched, they they seem to have. Uh, it seemed to be sort of moving pictures was their breakthrough into mega stardom, if you will, sort of you know when they sort of like that's it, they're a proper arena band and I guess financially secure from that point of view. Should we say something about the the origins? don't want to go too much into the history of the band so we don't really do that but i think it's quite interesting that alex lifeson alexandra zibijinovic a serbian immigrant and gary lee weinrib and also an immigrant whose parents actually met at auschwitz both moved into toronto lived a couple of streets from each other and obviously alex alexander zibijinovic changed well he didn't officially change his surname but he used the he just translated it to lifeson because he didn't think that that name would be pronounceable and he said he didn't want to spend his entire career correcting people and telling them how to spell it. And then he spent his entire career correcting everybody and making it Lifeson. And and obviously Gary Lee Weinrib, apparently Gary, Geddy is how his mother pronounced Gary, so it just became his nickname. So he did, But he did officially change it to Geddy Lee. And what about John Rutsey? Well, John Rutsey was another neighbour. He was in a band with Alex Lifeson, John Rutsey and, and a guy called Jeff Jones. They were in a band. And I think one day Jeff Jones just didn't turn up so Alex called his mate Geddy, and uh, who uh, they were both they played together. They were great mates. They were musicians together. But actually, Alex was in this band with John Rutsey, who was a guy from over the road, uh, drummer, and Jeff Jones, who was the bass and vocalist. As I say, he didn't turn up one day, so Geddy was in the band. And there, there was a brief period when Geddy got kicked out again because they had a manager called Ray Daniels, and he kicked him out for a bit. And a guy called Joe Perna was briefly in on bass and vocals, but then that didn't work out, so they asked Geddy back. And um, I think they've got over that now. But for a while, Geddy was. Uh, not happy about that circumstances. No, I don't blame him. I'm not sure I'd have gone back. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know why that happened. It's it's not clear why he kicked him out. Maybe Ray just didn't like Geddy's singing voice or something like that. I don't know. You know, they get on fine now. It's no problem. Yeah, they seem to have um, moved on. Yeah, there was a couple of other people that were in the band briefly, like Lindy Young, who was um, Geddy's future brother-in-law. He played on keyboards for a while, and a guy called Mitch Bosey played with them for a while. But essentially, it was that. Alex Geddy and initially John Rutsey was pretty solid from the beginning and the lineup barely changed for a long time. And they then went on to record that debut album. Should we go straight into that? Yeah, let's let's so that's nineteen seventy four, the debut album called Rush. It was produced by a guy called David Stock, but they didn't like that. They thought it wasn't what they wanted at all, so they found a guy called Terry Brown to remix it. Added a couple of they took off some cover versions and added a couple more tracks and uh, released it on Moon Records initially. And then later it was sold to Mercury. Pretty much written by Lee and Lifeson. John Rutsey was supposed to write some lyrics but didn't. So Geddy had to write most of them. Which I think is why they're not that great. He writes things like, hey Cookie, it's a quarter to eight. I feel I'm in the mood. Yes, that's not not his best bit, is it? <laughs> He's no Neil Peart when it comes to lyrics. So what do you think of this album? This album, I think, I'm going to echo what sort of most people say about this one. It seems like a fairly standard rock album with definite Led Zeppelin influence. I know there were, at this time, they were heavily influenced by Cream and Led Zeppelin. And to me, as someone who isn't, who doesn't know Led Zeppelin that well, this does sound like um, 
a very sort of strong Led Zeppelin influence in, on this album. And it's not really a Rush album, although obviously you, there is some Rushness in there, but a lot less. And it's more of a standard rock album. It's not really the Rush that I like, that I sort of know and love. But that said, it's a perfectly enjoyable listen. There's nothing wrong with it, and it's quite consistent throughout. The, you know, there's no terrible songs on it or anything. It's quite enjoyable. I'm just I'm not sure, you know, compared with other Rush albums on your shelf, I would sort of ever ever pick this one to listen to. What about you? I think that's a, a really good summary, actually. I think it's a decent pop rock record. It's got some good moments. Um, for me, I think Here Again is probably the highlight, um, which actually wasn't on the original album it was only on the subsequent terry brown one it does it, it does sound a bit like led zeppelin places i think because they do kind of line up the bass guitar and drums in the same sort of way and it's got that sort of bluesy rock thing but i think it's a warmer production and i always thought this because a lot of people i knew around the same time were big led zeppelin fans and i quite liked led zeppelin you know i really did but uh, i always thought rush had a much warmer feel to it uh, and to me that's quite that's already there i think that must be a terry brown thing i'm not quite sure but yeah I, I, nothing much to add from what you say really I agree, it's not really a typical Rush... Well, there isn't a typical Rush album, I guess, because they seem to go through so many phases. But, yeah, it's not one that I would reach for, apart from Here Again, which I would listen to again and again. I do think that's an absolute great song, and that's obviously... I'm, I'm going to vote for that immediately to go on the playlist. OK, so we agreed on that. But I, I mean, that, for me, as well, is the, the highlight of the album as well. Yeah, I think that could that could happily sit on some of their later albums and not look out of place at all. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. And what about the second track? I mean, I, I think I would suggest Working Man. I was going to say Working Man. I think it's between Working Man and Finding My Way. And of those two, I do prefer Working Man. But I think those are the two other stronger tracks. Yes, I would agree. My, that, that is my top three exactly as well. Oh, is it? Well, yeah. there you go. It must be right then. I think that's that shows that's a fact. So we can jump ahead. 1975 to Fly By Night... Yeah, I think it was only about six months later as well that they're knocking this one out. As, as you said, the sort of at the beginning they were very influenced by Cream and Led Zepp and uh, the Who. The Who were another massive influence by them. But John Rutsey left. The only lineup change we've got to talk about. It was sort of mainly health related. I think he was um, he was a diabetic, so I think it was mainly, he couldn't cope with the touring or anything like that. So I think it was mainly health related. Although I get the feeling that they he was a bit of an awkward character as well. So it may be that there's a bit more to it than that. But the official story is it was just he was a decent enough drummer, but he just, you know, health wise couldn't cope. Yeah, the thing the things I was watching um, said it was having diabetes and trying to have a rock and roll lifestyle at the same time, and just said it's it's not possible long term to do it. So they did some auditions and Neil Peart joined. Yeah, so it's um it's actually eleven months later. Oh, is it? Yeah, this is February seventy five, and Rush was March seventy four. Oh, okay. Well, as I say, I've got the um, Rush's website open. It's really well put together, and there's so much information on there. It's like all the albums. They've got all the credits, all the liner notes, all the lyrics, all the songs and lyrics and everything. It's really well put together, brilliantly. So what do you think of Fly By Night? I I think, it's, obviously, it's a start. It's a step towards the whole prog, and it's, this is more of a Rush album. I have to say, I'm not a massive fan of the album. There are some bits on it I, I like. And there are some decent songs. Everybody seems to go on about Bytor and the Snow Dog being like a really good, great, strong track. I personally don't get that. 
But I do, there are bits on it. It's okay, is basically what I'll say, but it's obviously, there's that progression noticeable here of the step towards the proper proggy rush that we're going to get in, in the next few albums. Yeah, I think by this time the, the musical influences were moving a bit beyond what we just said and they're really getting into people like Yes and King Crimson and Genesis and that's what you I think we're hearing a lot of because that, that's where you get in the, you know, all the, as you say, the more proggy influences are coming in there. But I, 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 I sort of main, mainly agree with you, I think. I think it is a bit more interesting because of that. It's got slightly more variety, different kinds of songs like Rivendell and Making Memories, a bit more folky, a bit more acoustic-y. Um, I really do like Biter on the Snowdog. I think it's a great track. I think it's probably their best track up until this point as well. I think some of the lyrics are a bit... It's this thing I've got with Neil Peart and his lyrics. I mean, he's obviously a very... was obviously a very talented writer, skillful wordsmith and all that stuff. And sometimes he gets absolute crackers. But sometimes you just think, I, I don't quite know why you made the song of this, you know. A lot of things, like Anthem, I'm thinking... It, it feels very wordy, wordy, and it's about an Ayn Rand lo- novel. And I kind of, I don't know, I just kind of want to hear something a bit more personal, a bit more, you know, rather than somebody's musing on, on Ayn Rand's objectivism and, and, and that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, mean, I, I find, I think I find Rush generally actually some hit or miss. And this is a typical Rush album in, in a way, in the fact that it's got some really good songs on and a couple of the songs I really don't like. And that's what you get with a lot of Rush albums. His lyrics as well, when he gets a bit too Tolkien-y, I sort of, I'm not that happy. But but seeing as we're on the subject of Anthem and Ayn Rand, there is sort of some controversy, isn't there, about Neil Peart being an Ayn Rand supporter and everything. Do you think there's anything in that? I mean, I don't really know anything about Ayn Rand. Well, I've read um, Atlas Shrugged, um, which uh, for anyone who's read Atlas Shrugged, yes, I did skip the John Galt speech, which will make sense to people who've read the book. But... Uh, um, I don't know how much there is in that, to be honest. I mean, he sort of denies it. He said that he was young, he was reading loads of things, and it was just really interesting for him. And I know when I read Atlas Shrugged, it is really interesting. I mean, it's not particularly well written in places, but mm. it is really interesting what she's talking about and what she's saying. And that's all he, he was saying. He was a young guy. He was reading loads of stuff. And that, among many other things, was really interesting to him. And it is interesting. Yeah. It doesn't mean that he's some top selfish uber right wing person. He is somebody who is eclectically reading lots and lots of things. Yes. I mean, the Rush fellas in general don't come across as, as right wing fellas, do they? So it seems likely that he's just read a book he found interesting as, and has used it as the basis of a song or two. They're, they're very apolitical. They're just regular people. Well, I don't think Neil Peart's a regular guy. But, you know, Alex and Getty are just regular guys. You know, they're just, you know, I think they're sort of reasonably apolitical, but they appear to have a conscience. I don't think Neil Peart's a particularly regular guy. Um, I think he was, you know, extremely sort of introverted. And because he was in the position he was in, he never really had to compromise on that. In the same way as you or I have to work in an office and we have to compromise and we have to, you know, you have to engage with the world because that's the only way you can get through it. He was in a position where he didn't have to. So I think, I wouldn't quite describe him as a regular guy, but, you know, he said that about Ayn Rand. He was just interested in lots and lots of things. So, what about the tracks here? Well, a couple of them are older. Things like Best I Can is a an older track, which you can tell. I think it's pretty mediocre. In the End is a bit older as well, with lyrics by Geddy. So not all the lyrics are by, are by Neil yet. I think Beneath, Between and Behind was the first song they wrote together, which was about exploring America. But for me, yeah, the best song is Bytor. And strangely, I've met two dogs called Bytor 
in the past few weeks, which is uh, unusual. But uh, but yeah, I would definitely vote for Bytor and the Snowdog. Were they Rush fans? Did you check? Well, one of them was. Cause he was our, our mutual friend, Adrian. He's got a Doberman, just got a Doberman called uh, Bytor. But the other one, no, was just somebody I just met out and about. And I said, is it from the Rush song? And he recognised that. And he said, no, it was actually from another source, which I, I can't remember now. But he did recognise what I was talking about. So I don't really want to pick this song. My, my top two are Anthem and In The End. Okay. Well, I had In The End as second, along with Rivendell. Okay. And Anth- Anthem was fourth. Right. So let's put In The End on the list. Yeah. See, I've got Rivendell quite low as well. Well, why don't we put Bytor on? Because it is one of my, you know, top Rush songs. And then you can have a bit more freedom on the next album okay. if you want. Plus, everyone else does seem to like it. I think it is just me. It usually is, isn't it? Uh, sometimes. This this does happen. And ranking the album, does this go above Rush or not? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think it's quite difficult, isn't it? But I think it probably does. But I would accept an argument that it doesn't. I think it's quite close. But in the end, I kind of just about snuck it above. You see, I, I would kind of reverse that in that I would, I think, leave Rush at the top, but not with a strong opinion at all. I, th- I think the I think the first album is probably more fun to listen to. It's more consistently good throughout. But I kind of see the point of view that Fly By Night is a proper development and in a way a better album because... And kind of its weakness is the fact that it's a better album because they're trying things. And just, for me, a couple of those things don't work. So, not really strongly, I would say, that Rush would be top. But I'm I'm happy for Fly By Night to go top, if you want it that way. Well, as I said, I I don't feel particularly strongly on it. They're they're fairly close, and I think you're right in what you're saying. I do think uh, Fly By Night is a more interesting album. I think there's a bit more going on, but yes, it's a little bit more hit and miss. And some of the stuff on there is older you know that's just not quite as good like i said like best i can just isn't a great song at all making memories to me is a little bit bland well i think i'm talking myself at poundy because thinking back to when we did muse we always ranked interesting above sort of consistence you know the the fact that we put muse's more interesting albums above something like absolution which is a sort of consistently good rock album and i do think muse have a bit in common with rush particularly this this proggy bit so I'm wondering whether we should actually put Fly By Night above and stay well, consistent with what we did with Muse. Okay, let's do that then. We might as well be consistent. We're not usually. We're generally not, so... So let's be inconsistent with our consistency by being consistent when we're normally inconsistent. Well said. And talking of inconsistent, the next album, 1975's Caress of Steel, they really kind of step into prog stuff here. With all sorts of things going on, spoken word, you know, an entire side dedicated to a single piece. What do you think of this? Quite oddity. I know that the, the record called it's often called a like folly. It. Sorry, it's often called a folly. This album. A folly. That's a bit rude. I think. Yeah. You know, the, the the record company didn't like it, didn't it? And I think a lot of the fans didn't, and it didn't perform that well. And they partly said there was no single on it, like for radio play. But I do think Lakeside Park and Bastille Day could both go on the radio, certainly American rock radio. I do really like this album. I accept some of the criticisms of it. Obviously, I think I'm Going Bald is rubbish, and it should be a B-side at best. The Fountain of Lamnef I really like, although I do accept it's a bit disjointed and it doesn't really feel like one track because it stops and starts properly. But ultimately, those bits of the song... I do do really like, and I do think it's it's really really good. 
So I, I'm, it was a big thumbs up for me for a caress of steel. Ah, uh, interesting, interesting. I, again, I don't particularly disagree. I think I'm slightly less warm on it, but I actually am quite fond of it. And uh, you know, it is their first attempt to try and write much longer, complex pieces with these multiple movements and. I think it works in places. I agree with you about Phantom of Lamneth. I think I, I do really like it. I think it's largely forgotten because there's better stuff to follow. But I think it's pretty good. Not all of it. And I agree with you, it would be better broken up. I think it would feel more accessible. But yeah, I, I, I do like that quite a lot. I think the whole album feels a bit baggy and a bit naive in places. I'm not mad keen on Bastille Day. And again, it's this. It, it, it's a good example of their prog metal thing that they're creating, which I think is good. But again, it's this Neil Peart writing about issues, you know, a song about the French Revolution. I'm not particularly into the the, the subject matter. Lakeside Park, I think, is good because it's a lot more personal. Necromancer, I'm not so keen on. I think it's just the spoken word thing that gets to me. I just find that a little bit annoying. I quite like I Think I'm Going Bald. I think it probably belongs on the first two albums. It's just a, you know, fun, growly blues song. But I actually quite like it. It was kind of a bit of a joke to Alex Lifeson, who thought he was going bald. Which he wasn't then, although he is now. No, I'm, I'm not not a fan of that one. I think we largely agree there, don't we? I think that the Phantom of, La- of Lamneth is the, is the standout track, although, as I said, it doesn't really feel like a track because there are proper gaps, and I think it fades out one bit as well, which, of course, we don't like. No, no, very much against that. But there are proper gaps where I think they could have just merged it all in bit together so it just felt like one flowing track. Yeah, and and, and you're right, The you know, this... The first album sold fairly well. Fly by Night sold better, so it felt like they were growing. Whereas this sold worse. It went back to the first album level. So it wasn't like it was kind of a disaster or anything, but it just felt like their growth had stalled. And because it was so different, I think that's what gave the the record company the heebie-jeebies because they were suddenly thinking, what the hell's going on here? And if you're a fan, if you've bought Rush liking Working Man and then, you know, liking Anthem and Finding My Way and stuff, this is different. For us, looking backwards, it wasn't because we sort of went, with, you know, we arrived at it through twenty one twelve and and other stuff. So, but I, I can understand it, you know, if you're following a band and then they release something that's quite different from the, you've no obligation to like it, have you? No, I don't think no, because in those days, record companies did give bands more time to grow and develop, didn't they? Yeah, I I find it hard that some, you know, a record company executive or whatever would listen to that and think, oh no, this is rubbish. Don't really want to give these guys another deal. I, I, it does it seem, just odd, seem strange it? that they don't see the potential. They might think, okay, Fly by Night had radio hits on, which started their success. The first one had Working Man, which was a minor hit, wasn't it? And yeah. this didn't have anything like that on. And that's obviously contributed to that. But you would think the record company could see past that and think, well, this is a good album. We'll give them another album. Or t- I know they did give them another album, obviously. But you just think they would invest that and just try and nudge them to the way of writing a, the odd single or two. As we know, yeah. they're very good at that too. Well, well, they did get better at that uh, later. But you think, yeah, you think as well, you know, they were, as we said, influenced by Yes and Genesis and stuff like that, which were really successful, massively successful. Pink Floyd, Gentle Giant, you know, ELP. There was loads of that proggy stuff going on. So it's not like they were way out there doing something totally left field. It was within the realm of what was popular at the time. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of similarly not quite sure what's so wrong with it although i i see that it is a bit baggy in places it is a bit sort of naive here and there it's not as good as some of the later stuff but still i've never quite understood it as being this big stumble this folly that others have described it as 
No. And obviously, if you look at the the three albums that, I think, was it Archives, the collection they came yeah. together? I think you can definitely see their progression towards, you know, the... Yeah, the, I agree. The, obviously, it's 2112 next, isn't it? So it's like, that's when they, you get the full-blown prog metal rush, and it? You know, to me, it's an obvious stepping stone. Obviously, it's easier to see when you've got 2112 and the others next, but still, I, I would expect it to be reasonably obvious. So what tracks are we going to pick then? Well, I would pick The Fountain of Lamnef. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I know it's a whole side, but I'm okay with that. I mean, what we could do, again, creating a new rule, is if we don't like anything else that much, is just leave The Fountain of Lamnef, because it is quite long. Well, I think not not because we don't like anything else, because I do like Lakeside Park quite a lot. Yeah. And I do quite like, I think, of going bald. And I don't mind Bastille Day. I don't like the end of it, but I don't mind the song. But just because it's an entire side, maybe we just pick that and we don't pick a second track. Yeah, I think so. When I said don't like the rest, I mean don't like enough. So I think, to me, The Fountain of Lamnef is a lot stronger than the rest of the album. It is the essence of the album as well, yeah. I think. It's kind of what they were trying to do. So, And where are we ranking the album? It feels like we're putting it top of these three, isn't it? I would definitely put it top. Yeah, okay. I, I had it top as well. I'm just not as definite than you as you are. It was just nudging above them, whereas you seem a lot more sure. Indeed, yeah. I'm saying it with remarkable levels of confidence. That you it are. should be, though. Yeah, you are. It's, it's coming across very convincingly. Well, yeah, if you, you know, if you say something with a lot of confidence, sometimes people believe you. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like it's truer. So 21.12. Yeah, that's the next one. So I think they got, after Crisis Talks with the manager, did, I think they got um, a one-album extension on the deal or something to, to come up with a, a hit single and resurrect their their career. So they wrote a, an entire side rock opera based on Iron Rand. Yeah, I think that the nod to Iron Rand there is actually... Is about the selfishness, isn't it? And like actually just getting on and doing what they want and not worrying about keeping other people happy there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, they were under pressure to sort of become a bit of a, you know, I think they were saying, a, was it Backman Turner Overdrive and those kind of bands at the time that were playing that more pop rock, the fly by night type songs. Uh, but that's just not what they wanted to do. They were just much more into the proggy stuff. So they just doubled down on it, really, didn't they? After the sort of warning of, yeah, after the warning of Caress of, Caress of Steel. They just went, well, let's just do that, but 10 times more. Yeah. And they came up with uh, 2112. Let's just do it again then, seeing as that's yeah. not what they want. <laughs> but even more so, so, as you say, the sort of prog metal masterpiece that uh, they came out with. Yeah. And do you think it's a prog metal masterpiece? I, I think that's a bit strong. I do like it. Uh, I, I, the, the side one, again, which is the sort of the dominant part, the sort of main bit of the album, the 2112 suite, I do really like, you know, the main bits that they play now, Overture, Temples of Syrinx and final, uh, finale, uh, Grand Finale. I do really like it. But similarly, there are moments in it where you kind of feel this is a bit, you know, really, it feels a little bit embarrassed. Oh, I found a guitar, you know. Oh, stop doing that, you naughty boy. Oh, look at the beautiful music. It just feels a bit naive, that whole thing. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I, I don't really like the science fiction angle so much. So, yeah, musically, I do really like it but it's a bit overlong, it feels a bit naive, It's it's got its fantastic high points, but yeah, you know, that's my, that's on the first half. The second half is just, you know, some quite good songs, Fair some enough. of which I like more than others. I would largely agree with that. I, th- I think as the, the side one, I do think is, is great. I do think the story is a little bit 
naive yeah. and cheesy and um, appears to be the plot of um, We Will Rock You as well, the musical. <laughs> yeah, which isn't a great plot, I have to say. It's not. Yeah, so it, it, it is a bit cheesy, but I think musically it really is great. And side two, like you say, is is all right. I think there's um, it's fairly consistent. There's nothing terrible on the side two. There's just some okay songs. There's nothing that great. And certainly, I, could, I think the younger me very, very rarely flipped twenty one twelve over. I can understand why, really. Well, I think the reason the reason you might not is just because side one is really good. Not that side two is particularly bad or anything. It's not bad, but I think you know compared with side one as well, it is sort of a little bit average, which is probably being a bit harsh because it's not, you know, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, and and it also because side one is such a complete story that flows. And then side one is just some songs. It sort of feels a little bit odd. It's just like we've got some space. So we'll put some stuff on. Uh, you know, if, if it's a concept album, for me, it kind of feels like it should be a concept album. It should be a concept side and then some songs. For me, I just find I always find it slightly harder to engage with side two for that reason. Although I have to say, uh, you know, Geddy's voice is always something that's kind of controversial. And I do think there's times when it's absolutely wonderful, like in Here Again. But I also think the Twilight Zone, I just think is... His voice on that, oh my god! And normally, I don't think he's a particularly emotional singer. I think his his voice does actually lack emotion uh, often, not always, but often. But on that song, you know, he's just really nails it. I just really love his voice on that song, and I don't always love his voice. Well, I think I've you know looking at my notes as well, I have that down as my favourite song for side two. So, shall we put that on our list? Yeah, let's put that on. And we should really put twenty one twelve on. I think we have to. Do we have to put it on as a whole? We do on this version. Right. Okay. Well, let's do that. Even though we could just put that on and not put the Twilight Zone to be similar with the Fountain of Lamneth principle. We could. But having said, it is both our favourite songs on side two. And having what yeah. you just said about Geddy's vocal performance, let's let's leave it on. Okay. Let's do that then. I'm guessing we're moving this up to the top. Yes, yes. I think so, yeah. I think you have to put the song 2112 or the song before the Twilight Zone. It just feels wrong to do it the other way around. Mm, yes, I've done that. So next, we actually get a farewell to Kings. Well, they do record all the world's a stage, the the live album at this point. It's a bit of a mess, in my opinion, in uh, in Toronto. But then, as you say, they go on to the big big change because they go and record this in Wales and record it mostly outside, which is very unusual. So there's sort of a real big change in style here. Yeah, I think they felt influenced by a lot of the British acts, don't they? So I think that was part of their influence to come over. And I think it was recorded in Wales and London, I think. I know. Recorded at Rockfield Studios, Wales, June 1977, and then mixed at Advision Studios in London. But it's a, to me, it's a real different sound, this, this album. I think the, the guitars are tuned quite a lot lower. It's less riffy. You know, you've got higher drums, more keyboards, synths coming in here. Quite a, quite a different tone. Certainly not prog metal anymore. A much sort of softer sound. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is very different to twenty one twelve. So, that, so they have changed. I mean, I as I said before, it's not one I really listened to before. So I've, I've kind of I'm fairly new to it. I've heard closer to the heart quite a bit, but the rest of it I wasn't that sure of. I think some of it is it's really really strong. Most of it is in, in fact. I mean, I really I really like the whole album to be honest. I mean, Xanadu, I think, is a, a standout track. Yeah, I have that as my top track as well. Yeah. And apparently this is where they introduced the double necks that they famously are pictured with around this time, although I think it was 
it was around here that they they were thinking how can we play this live and the double neck was introduced so that Geddy could play rhythm guitar with his hands and bass with his feet whilst Alex was soloing that's one of the, the reasons that they brought no I mean just playing any single instrument at all difficult but of course the Geddy is doing about two or three things at the same time and with the keyboards, they were thinking, well, how do we do the keyboards live? Do we? And they even thought about bringing another person to play. But in the end, they went for the using the pedals. So they, this is when they were really developing their use of pedals to trigger things, trigger sounds, or, or, or to actually play live with the pedal. Yeah, so it's very impressive anyway, seeing them on live doing, doing this. It's interesting as well, is you, you've got here, this is, this is apparently where the, the sort of the seeds of future conflict with Terry Brown, their producer, are laid here because... Well, seeds they should be sown I suppose the seeds were sown here and uh, because the keyboards he was really keen to make sure that they just stayed in the background and that they were just adding atmosphere and layers because he was saying that it, and I entirely agree with him that they really lack edge Rook, Rush were a power rock trio and you sort of needed the attack of the guitar and they wanted that to be much more the sort of centre to the sound so he was okay with keyboards and that but they had to stay very much in the background but you can see there where there's obviously that's going to that tension is going to build up over the next few albums. Yes, yeah, they don't stay there, do they? But I mean, I certainly no, I think they really for now, don't. <laughs> I mean, at this point, we're at 1977 as well. I don't mean, the technology with the keyboards is not really there that obviously they have in the 80s as well when they when they do go obviously a lot keyboard heavy. So I think at this point they're right to 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 sort of leave them in the background and just yeah. sort of have them add a add a sort of layer. Yeah, it's given them that fuller sound. It is slightly softer. So so we both picked out Xanadu as a top track, and I, I think it is the standout track. So that, for me, definitely goes on the list. Do you have another? I would probably... I mean, I, li- I like Cygnus X1 Book 1, but it's also quite long. And Closer to the Heart, I think they're probably my top three. So I would probably pick Closer to the Heart, just as is it shorter, and it's it's a single. It was an, it's another breakthrough single. Yeah, that's okay with me. I mean, similarly, I, I do like Cygnus X1 up to a point, although... I don't think it's anywhere near a patch on on Xanadu. I find the sh- the shouting of the vocals just too much, and on that so I don't know. And again, you've got the sort of the spacey science fictiony thing. I'm, I'm slightly put off by. I do like the first song as well, Feral to Kings. That would also be up there for me. So the first three songs, really. Yeah, I found that as um, a slow burner for me. I didn't initially like it that much, but it, it is growing. So I think as I listen to it more, it will uh, it will keep growing. But we can put closer to the heart on. I mean, it is a, as you say, it is the single. So where are we going to rank the album? I think I would keep going, and I, I think it's the top. As you put it above twenty, uh, below twenty. Uh, sorry, above twenty-one twelve. Yeah, because I, I think overall it's a more consistently good album. Twenty-one twelve has a half of excellence, but I don't say this with the confidence I had when I was going on about Caress of Steel. So I, I would not argue strongly if you wanted to put it below twenty-one twelve. Or indeed at all. I, yeah, I mean, I have it slightly below, but I, I, I similarly, I, it's a couple of songs in the sort of latter half, the sort of Madrigal and ones like that, and Cinderella Man, I think. Is it Cinderella Man? Have I got my right? Mm, yeah, Cinderella yeah. Man and Madrigal. I'm, I'm slightly less enamoured with. So I, I kind of I kind of had it below 2112, but on a knife's edge. Okay. I mean, I'm happy so, with it staying below. I don't have a problem with that. I, I have them fairly even anyway. Yeah. I think I probably would. I do like the edginess more of 2112. I do find this slightly, a t- little too soft for my taste. Are oh, they saying that? Xanadu is such a good song. Okay, let's just leave it there then. 
because there's nothing remotely interesting about listening to people going, eh, eh, <laughs> because they can't decide stuff. I think that they're close enough that it doesn't actually really matter, so let's just leave it second. Okay. So the next one, we go on to 1978 and Hemispheres. Yeah, back to Wales. Yeah, and another side one of one song. And it does feel more like one song, this like like twenty one twelve and in fact more than twenty one twelve, I think. It, it does just flow and keep going, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree it does. Although I think it's actually less successful. I think of all of the full side pieces or lengthy pieces, I think it is less successful than those. It's it's good, it's fine. I do like it. But I just don't think it's as good as Twenty One Twelve or or the Fountain of Lanneth either. Even it's probably a controversial view, but I, I just don't think it is. I mean, this whole album—they're really pushing themselves in in the sort of instruments here. So it, it, everything on this album is good, you know, because they really are pushing themselves, and they're, they're brilliant musicians anyway. And this is the one where they're really going hard at it. And I think even with La Villa Strangiato, they were saying that they couldn't play the whole thing. When they were recording it, they were just unable to do it, so they had to record it in bits and just piece it together in the in the, in the studio. Although they they can do it now, of course, but um, they couldn't at the time. That's how you know much they were really pushing themselves. So when I say I don't think it's as good as that, I mean it is. It's brilliant. It's amazing. But it's for me, it just feels a little bit more tootling along, and it's not really impacting me as much as those other ones did. That's quite controversial. I mean, I do think it, it is up there with them and. It was for a long time my favourite album, particularly yeah, particularly the side. I mean, to be honest, I spent ninety percent of my rush listening when I was a teenager was side one of Twenty One Twelve and side one of Hemispheres. Oh, really? So you've listened to this a lot more than I have. Then. Yeah, I, I, yeah, over the time, and and then it's sort of ten percent or maybe a bit more, but of you know bits tracks off albums. So Love the Strangiata, particularly off side two here and bits and pieces. So. I really do love side one, I have to say. Side two, I don't think is as strong. La Villa Strangiato, obviously, is very impressive, especially to piece it together like that and then subsequently learn to play it so that they can uh, actually play it is good. Yeah. Circumstances is absolutely fine. The trees, lyrically, I, I don't know. I'm not a massive fan on, although, fan of, although musically I, I, I like it. You know, it's, it's a great album musically. Yeah, it, the trees... Lyrically, I mean, Neil Peart himself criticises the lyrics of this. He sort of said, dashed it off and felt, I think he described it as dog roll. You know, he, he just didn't think it was that good. And it just ended up being on the album. That was it. It's stuck then, hasn't it? But I, he didn't particularly like it. But again, it, it sort of fed into the right wing thing because it wasn't about, you know, the, the maples want more sunlight, therefore we have to cut the oaks down and that's the fair and right thing to do. It was sort of the opposite, is let oaks be oaks, let maples be maples, you know. And and it was sort of arguing that enforced equality essentially stopped oaks being oaks, if you see what I mean. So again, it, it sort of fed into this idea that he was this kind of right-wing figure, which again, he, he didn't really mean it in a right-wing sense, but he did mean it in quite an individualistic sense. But I mean, that's the guy he is. He is a, you know, he's his own person. As, as we've said but yeah lyrically i think it's pretty pretty weak it doesn't really work it's far too literal or, or rather the metaphor is far too obvious it's far too clumsy i think by far and away the strongest track is the last one la villa strangiato as i call it strangiato you're saying of a hard g don't know who's right probably not me because it's not it's it's not english is it so well i think it's i think it's um softer g before an i so I'm, I'm going for strangiato but that for me is by far and away the the strongest track so i, I think that has to go in, go on 
and then if you want to put side one on. I think I've got to give side one another listen by the sound of it. You've convinced me that it's worth uh, listening to a bit more, perhaps. Yeah, give it a go. I don't think it's as, it's as strong as Fountain of Lamnath and 2112, and it 100% flows better than both of them, which I know does not make a song, but it does. And I do think it's it's really strong. I think possibly, out of the three, I possibly even... I've just really enjoyed listening to the Fountain of Lamnath so much, since I think some of the sounds in there are just brilliant. So it, it would be nice, actually, if they'd have put that together a little bit better and mixed it up. And I think had they done that, had they, if they were making that now, it would be by far the, at the top. There's better tunes in it, I think, possibly. Yeah, I, I just... I mean, I have listened to Side One of Hemispheres quite a lot, but just not as much as you have, I don't think. And probably it's just washed over me a bit more. But maybe I need to give that a bit more attention. So if you want that to be the other track, we can. Uh, yes, I do. Okay. So where do you want to rank it? I want to put it at the top. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, like you, it was my favourite Rush album for a long, long time. And maybe it still is. We don't know yet, do we? Yeah, well, we will see. We'll have to find out. Because, of, of course, at this point, we haven't actually uh, listened Finished that much beyond here. So. I'm pretty much through... I'm already pretty much through the 80s, but I want to give them all a listen again. Because I I, I think there's there's a lot of that period which was underrated and not necessarily given the attention it deserved. Certainly my musical taste was going in different directions. So I, I really want to make sure that I do really give do it justice. So. Yeah, me too. I also think that because we've been doing the 70s actually for quite a while, I don't know, it's probably a couple of months at least, isn't it? Yeah. I've listened to all these prog ones a hell of a lot to the point where I do feel a little bit progged out. And I think Rush did as well, didn't they? Kind of when they'd finished making Hemisphere. Yeah. So I'm actually quite looking forward to moving into the 80s and listening to the new stuff. And I hope I can sort of appreciate it more than I really did when I was a teenager because I didn't listen to much of it with the exception of a few songs. I sort of picked that cherry pick some songs I listened to. So I don't think I know any of the albums that well, you know. I listen to Spirit of Radio and YYZ a lot, a bit of Tom Sawyer. So it'll be interesting actually to to move on now and and, and see what, what I find. Yeah, I, I don't know the next three albums, next four albums, even maybe Grace Under Pressure as well, pretty well. But after that, it becomes a lot less. So I know them, but not as well. So yeah, I'm similarly looking forward to um, really giving them some some attention and seeing what I think of them. So that's the end of part one. Okay, welcome back. And what was a few seconds for you has been a couple of months for us. Because the other side of the sting had overdosed on 70s prog, and now you have somebody who's overdosed on 80s synth rock rushed at the moment. Yeah. So we have also done a little bit more research. And when I say we, it's mainly you, isn't it, John? Yeah, yeah. I read the next Martin Popoff book, the one that's called... Uh, oh, God, what's it called? Limelight. It's called Limelight, the one that's about the 80s. And how was that? So it, go, it goes from everything from permanent waves all the way through to presto which is therefore what we will be talking about in this section it was good actually it was better than the first one i thought because in the first one there was a a vast amount of interview copy pasted in which didn't necessarily their flow because you would have like two or three pages of interviews from alex lyson or terry brown or whoever it might be and they would be saying the same things so it didn't necessarily flow as a narrative particularly well and this one is guilty of that to some extent, but it feels like a little bit less. So it felt like it flowed a little bit more. But it, as perhaps also because it's telling a bit more of a story, because you've got a little bit more controversy going on in this era. 
what with the change of sound and everything. So maybe that's part of it as well. Yeah, I suppose it makes it more interesting. There's a bit more to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I, I suppose for me as well, because I got to know Russ at, at Signals, Grace Under Pressure, around that time, and then bought those albums at, at the moment they were released, and every subsequent album, up until up until Roll the Bones anyway, at the point it was released, this was very much me living Rush, and getting each album, putting it on as a new album, full of hope and expectation, and I'll tell you whether or not that expectation was met as we go through. So in that sense, it was a bit more interesting for me to read it because this was from my own memory. I could remember these times and I could remember each album as it came out. And I saw Rush live in this period. So in that sense, perhaps it was a bit more interesting for me as well. Yeah. I mean, in the meantime, I've been tinkering around on YouTube with bits and pieces. I've also watched the Time Machine tour video. Oh, yeah, that's good, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was on um, It was on telly, so I watched it. Oh, was it on telly? It was on Sky Arts. Proper telly? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Sky, well, Sky Arts, if that's proper telly. Well, as, as opposed to YouTube. Yeah, I watched Beyond the Lighted Stage again, because that dropped into Netflix, I noticed, last right. week, and I watched it again. Okay, I enjoyed that a lot. I think it's really good. Mm, it is really well put together, and I think it's it's around the time of just after Vapor Trails, isn't it? So it does cover virtually all the career. Yeah, there is a documentary on YouTube as well, which covers, I think it's... Snakes and Arrows or Clockwork Angels. I've forgotten now. I, I watched it quite a while ago. There's a Snakes and Arrows one, I think. Yes, it is. It's Snakes and Arrows. It's the making Snakes and Arrows. Mm. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we get nearer to that album. Let's crack on with these 80s albums. Yeah, so released January 1980s, Permanent Waves. So they themselves said this was a conscious reaction to their progginess and and changing, basically, to a more... Certainly influenced by a lot of British New Wave acts and also people like Talking Heads, but certainly obviously there were big fans of The Police and some other bands. So it is very different, although there's still some prog here. What do you think of this one? Well, I I like this a lot, and this for a while was my favourite or joint favourite, perhaps, with Hemisphere's uh, uh, Rush album. I do. You can definitely hear the influence of the police, as you say. They, they were a ma- massive influence on them around this time. And I was quite surprised actually reading the, the the Martin Popoff book. It was just how open to other music that they were. They really were kind of eclectic in their tastes and really interested in listening to loads of stuff. And they wanted permanent ways, as you said, to, to to break away from what they'd done in the past. It was kind of really trying. How can we keep really complex songs? Keep all the complexity there. Keep the sort of the profundity but try and do it in a much shorter, tighter songs. And I, I think it works. So I, I like it. What about you? Fair enough. Yeah, and I, I don't think it works, really. Obviously, there's some good stuff on here. I mean, The Spirit of Radio is obviously a cracking song, and I think they're probably their... Well, I think not probably. It is their most radio-friendly, obvious hit single, isn't it? And it well, up it, to this point, yeah. And it... Well, I think I would say definitely. I would say not after... Well, I would disagree with you. Don't. Okay. But certainly at this point, and okay, we'll stay with that for the moment. But yeah, I, I, I think it, it has bits... I do like some of it. Obviously, it is a little bit proggy. It's a step in t- towards the new direction. They're not sort of fully there. And I like three of the songs, but I don't really like three of the songs. Okay, well, let's find out which three. Well, Spirit of Radio I like, Jacob's Ladder I like, and Different Strings I like. Natural Sounds is okay, and the other two I, I, I think are probably the worst two Rush songs to this point. Well, I, I, just... I, I, I get with a caveat, of course, 
I think I'm going bald. But at least with I think I'm going bald, that was an intentional silly song. Well, as you know, I quite like I think I'm going bald. But uh, I also, I, I tend to actually agree with you. I, I also like Spirit of Radio, Jacob's Ladder and Different Strings. Th- those are definitely my top three as well. I don't particularly like Free Will. Entre News okay. Um, and Natural Sounds is okay. So I, I wouldn't say that... that I wouldn't say they're the worst songs, but they're certainly much, much weaker. So I do definitely agree with you about the top three songs there. Okay. So so we'll pick our two from those three, definitely. I, and in fact, if I, could, if I can play a, play the Joker and, and sort of insist that Jacob's Ladder be one of them, and then you can choose the other, would that be all right? Yeah. I'm not sure we have Jokers, but... No, um, and I regret playing it now yeah. on this because I want to play it later. I didn't play it. That is the flaw and we in don't playing have the Joker, them. isn't it? Well, we don't have one. Yeah. Yet. Well, I might invent that rule later when I need it, because I feel I might need it going through the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Jacob's Ladder and which other one? Do we have to pick... I mean, I really like Different Strings and Spirit of Radio. Should we... I mean, Spirit of Radio is the obvious sort of standout track on here, isn't it? So I think we should probably pick that. Even though it, my resistance is because it's a little bit too obvious to pick it. Yeah, but we we don't not pick things just because they're obvious. Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, it, it's it's the obvious song because it's a very strong song. Mm. And therefore it would be sort of a bit unfair to punish it for that. If, if it's obvious but really not very good, then there's a reason not to pick it. But I don't think just being obvious is enough of a reason. So, yeah, let's pick those two then. Spirit of Radio and Jacob's Ladder. Okay, so... You seem a bit more enthusiastic about the album than me, so where are you wanting to put it in the ranking? Well, I would put it top. Ooh. Well, that's put the cat among the pigeons, hasn't it? It has, hasn't it? Because I I would be sort of fairly near the bottom. Really? I I mean, I think I would put it above Fly By Night. Oh, as low down as that? Below below Crest of Steel? Yeah, I do really love the Fountain of Lamnef, you see, so... Uh, Well, no, you can't go there. Well, no, we need to work out on where we're compromising to here. God, this is odd. What about below... So it's got to go above Caress of Steel. So I'll do that. What about above Farewell to Kings as well? Below 2112. You see, well, I'm not... My main res... Well, one of my... I don't really want to know. But I also think a Farewell to Kings is a little bit better than 2112. So... Well, yeah, okay. I probably don't. I think they're fairly close... I, th- I agree that they're fairly close, but I, I, I think for me, I don't really want permanent ways going up any higher. But I need to um, keep you happy too. Well, we can we can let all right. Well, let's leave it there for now, because you are compromising on putting uh, Failed Kings below twenty one twelve. So we can leave it there, and then because I feel that I feel that we're going to have a few tussles going through this next few albums anyway. Mm. So I kind of I kind of want to see how the how it all falls out before we really you know come to blows so let's leave it where it is for now we can shuffle it around a little bit after if we have to okay so we're moving on unto 1981 moving pictures which is i think at, at that point they didn't sort of have much pressure on them they were a happy group and i don't think you know they just got on and and did what they wanted really as i think they did sort of from now on really but um this was kind of like when they were settling into that I would say there's there's again less prog here again. They're sort of tiptoeing away from the prog from the prog label. Um, although there is bits, there's like li- little bits in here. I think that sort of remind me of Hemispheres. 
Yeah, you can definitely hear bits here and there, but you're right. It's, it, it does very much feel like that step away, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think compared to moving pictures, I think it is a an improved sound. And I think it's... What? This is moving pictures. Sorry. Um, what's the other one? Permanent Waves. Permanent Waves, yeah. So compared to Permanent Waves, I think it's quite similar in sound, but it is a little bit improved. It's better. I think their synth guitar balance is just a little bit um, improved as well. There are still there are some dated bits on it as well, but overall, it is a sound wise. I think it's a slight improvement. Song wise, I think it's a bigger improvement by quite a way on Permanent Waves. Well, again, I I, I do agree with what you're saying. I think it's definitely an improvement in terms of songwriting and structure and all of that kind of stuff. These are seven pretty the camera eye is still quite long, ten eleven minutes, but the rest of them are reasonably short songs by Rush standards. Although Red Barchetta, six minutes. but So I do think they're sort of pretty tightly written songs, pretty good. There's a lot of police in there. They're really into bands like that, Ultravox, those kind of English pop bands. They're really into the sort of new sounds that you could get and sampling and sequencing and stuff. But yeah, it's not overpowering it at this point. I think think they really kind of get a a really kind of nice sound with this because they still sound like a power trio rock band of virtuoso musicians that are using some new sounds but they're not overpowering they're just kind of adding some depth and they're making the songs fatter fuller and to me that it works again I, I think it's i said permanent ways works and i think it does but i think this really does work it does feel like the sort of perfect storm of all that's good about rush is really just clicking at this point yeah i, l- I largely agree with you i think it, it it is really good and you can as i said you can hear all that and they are they are always borrowing off other bands that they they like, and and they are doing that here and very effectively, I think. Yeah, I think so. I didn't realise that at the time just how open they were to other music. I mean, because I was so young and I was so closed, because I was um, such a ridiculous teenager. But they were obviously were you know thirty year old men. They were huge music fans. They were very very open to different kinds of music. They didn't categorise themselves just because I'd categorised them. And, and therefore they were just open to so many different influences as of course we'll see over over the next albums yeah i mean there's certainly reading the album by album book that, that martin popoff is interviewing some musicians as well and they keep referring to certain areas where russia definitely uh borrowed in inverted commas bits from other musicians and things so they are definitely have been doing that and in, influenced if not just um, at times nicking bits as well, but I think that's fine. <laughs> but I think it's fine to nick bits, isn't it? Because it's so, it's an homage. As long as you're doing word? your own thing with it. Yeah, yeah. So where where are we? Well, let's do the let's tracks. tracks. Yeah. So which tracks do you want to pick? Well, I I like every single song. The worst for me is Witch Hunt. That's the weakest, and probably the album peaks with Red Barchetta, YYZ, and Limelight. Although I do have a huge soft spot for Vital Signs as well. But probably the best three are for me are Red Barchetta, YYZ and Limelight. And I, I, I kind of think it is YYZ, not YYZ. Because I think in Canada they say Z. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, I have YYZ as my top track. Okay. So that can, well, there we go. That's, that's on there. I have Red Barchetta as my bottom track. Oh really? Oh, that, I love Red Barchetta. Um, for me, for me, that's this is what's happening as well on this album. More, much more so than any album before it is Neil Peart's li- lyric writing. 
is really getting a lot more personal, a lot more kind of small in terms of more human-sized issues that he's sort of talking about. He's not necessarily talking about natural science or, you know, big weather systems in Jacob's Ladder or massive tales of whatever dragons and stuff. Not that they did dragons, but, you know, it's much more personal. That's one thing I adore about that Red Barchetta is it seems so personal. But anyway, you don't like it, so... Well, it... You're an awkward bugger. Yeah. I don't particularly... I don't dislike any song on this album, so... Okay, but relatively speaking. But so what, relatively what's, speak- what's in your top? What's in your top two or three then? Apart from YYZ. So YYZ. Ne- my next would be Camera Eye, which is out. Okay. Um, Tom Sawyer and Vital Signs. Okay. So um, I suppose Vital Signs was the other one we both said. Although I do like Tom Sawyer as well. So I'd be happy with Tom Sawyer. Yeah, I think Tom Sawyer would be another obvious one, but it's also it's not in the it's not the top one. So I would ra- rather go for Vital Signs. I think here. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, YYZ and Vital Signs then. And Vital Signs is probably their first, you know, really obviously direct reggae police sounding exactly like Andy Summers guitar e song. Certainly not their last one, but it is really they do do quite a lot of songs that are quite like that going forward yes. as well. So, which are really good. Some of my favourite Rush songs are those. So, yeah. So ranking wise, you want this at the top, do you? Yeah. Okay. And you? Well, I'm not sure. You see, I wasn't... Before I started listening to all this 80s stuff, I generally dabbled with more of the 70s. So I wasn't expecting most of the 80s stuff to really be competing with the top of the the 70s stuff. But I think this is actually the most consistent album so far. Yeah. But And I do... I, I agree with you. I do like every track, which I don't think I can say for any other Rush album. And I do think they got their sound right on this. They do still sound like that power rock trio, but it's not that overwhelming, you know, very lengthy, very proggy thing. It's it's punchy and tight at the same time as being power rock, at the same time as being quite profound and interesting. It is. It does really come together, I think, on this. Yeah, it is good. I think I just wasn't really prepared to be um, liking some of this 80s stuff quite as much as I did. Well, there's a little life lesson for you there as well, then, isn't there? Yeah. About, you know, staying open-minded. You never know. So you've learnt a lot with this. Always learning. Yeah, not not just moving pictures, but moving Gordon. Yes. <laughs> um, if we talk about the cover, by the way, moving pictures cover, I know we talk about the covers more in the end, but just a little cheeky trivia thing is that the fella who's on the star, you know, the Rush star logo from 2112. Yeah. Is... That is one of the pictures that they're carrying that has the star logo. And the person, the model who it is, is also carrying one of the pictures. So he's in the picture twice. And the woman from Permanent Waves is also one of the people standing at the side. And it's got a lot of the guy from Hemispheres who's standing on Hemispheres is one of the people carrying the photos as well. So it's 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 a real... A lot of their covers are like this, but Moving Pictures in particular is a real kind of cover that's really bringing in a lot of, not really in jokes, but a lot of in references in that cover. There's a huge amount going on in it. Yes, because there's different ver- um, ways of uh, looking at the phrase moving pictures as well, isn't there? Because there's uh, obviously they're physically moving pictures, but the people on the right are crying at the pictures as well because they are moving. Yeah. And apart and on the back as well, there is somebody making a film. 
Which is, well, of course, that's... called a moving picture as well. So, Well, that's actually is just literally they turned the camera around. That is the people that were taking that photo. Oh, okay. On the back cover. But yes, it is supposed to be people making a moving picture, making a film. But yes, it is actually the people doing that photograph, which is in, I think, um, Ottawa. I think it's a Canadian parliament building or something in Ottawa. And the three arches representing the three members of the band. But it's a real sort of meaningful cover. But yes, we aren't really supposed to be talking about the covers at this point, though. No, sorry, sorry. Breaking the rules. You are. So we move on to 1982 and Signals. So a lot more synths on this one. Do you like it? I do, yes. Uh, I have a a more of a nostalgic relationship with this because it is the first album I ever bought and the first song I ever heard by Rush was Subdivisions because that's the first song on the album which I heard on Christmas Day, because I got it for Christmas. So, uh, And I really liked it a lot, and I was so surprised that that's what Rush sounded like, because I just decided to like Rush without really knowing who they were. And I was so surprised that's what they sounded like, because I thought, oh, they'd be heavy metal. And they weren't. You got this, you know, like, sprawling on the fringes of the city sort of thing going on with these, you know, synth things it was i was quite surprised but uh so, so I, I accept that i do have a, a slightly subjective uh, nostalgic relationship with it but yes i do like it i think we should just just to sort of put it into context first before we talk about it a bit more because this is the album that's probably the sort of the breaking of the past rush and the the, the blossoming of a new rush from flying from the flames of of, of this album because it was after this album that they, they fired terry brown their long-standing producer and there was a lot of tension with him around this point because they were they liked him and they got on well as a person, but he didn't like the direction of the band with the keyboards. He didn't particularly like the sort of the uh, lesser role for Alex uh, as guitarist. And they were all kind of feeling that we never get anything new from Terry. We've heard it all before, and they wanted somebody new to push them in a new direction a bit. And so it, it kind of ended after this album. So that's what, uh, never before have I noticed how important the role of a producer is. Because you really hear the difference in the in the sound. So this is the last one with uh, Terry Brown. Yeah, Very, it, and, the, and it's really noticeable. Yeah, and there's there's no prog on this at all. The prog has gone, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I I think so. Yeah, I suppose it depends how you define prog. But yeah, at this point they, they'd lost interest in prog. I think there was only right really Marillion, I suppose, that were around or starting. Well, probably just before Marillion. This is, isn't it? But there wasn't a lot of prog around. They were listening to Ultravox, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, XTC, The Police. They weren't really interested in prog anymore. And it shows. Yeah, because I, I don't remember this album that well from the 80s. I just remember being a bit sniffy about it, really. I think mainly based on subdivisions, just even in sort of the mid to late 80s when I have heard it, I just remember it being quite dated, even then. And like, particularly the subdivisions video, and you know that vocals on it, you know the fella going subdivisions, <laughs> and that just it just seemed all a bit in cheesy and dated. Halls. Subdivisions in the shopping malls. So I kind of thought it was a bit sniffy about it. So this is probably in a long time the first time I've, I've listened to the album, and I've, it's just grown on me slowly, and just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, and I really love it now. Yeah, it's um, you probably regret giving me your vinyl copy of it then. I didn't give you a signal. I haven't got signals. You did. You did. Didn't I give you grace you under pressure? No, you gave me you gave me signals. Well, we were go, we were going to shed load of vinyl in Geisley, and you get and you were you had signals in your collection. I said, oh, I'm having that because I only had it on tape. 
Oh, did it? I don't even remember having it. Because uh, I, I, I do agree with you about the datedness of Subdivisions, and I actually think Subdivisions is, is it's a good song, but I, you know I don't think it's anywhere near the greatest song on the album. And I totally agree with you. I've listened to it so much over the past few weeks, and I've remi- remembered how much I liked it. And everybody I knew was sniffy about it because it wasn't prog anymore, and it was a bit poppy. But I found myself just kind of belting out New World Man the other day when I was just I was in the house on my own. I was dancing around, belting it out, having a brilliant time. And I I really turned up the volume a lot as well. Just how good Digital Man is. What a cracker of a song. I'd never really given it as much attention before as I as it deserved. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's I liked it anyway, but it has grown on me even more since. I mean, having listened to a lot of everyone else doing rankings on YouTube and stuff, there seems to be a general consensus that the last two tracks are the weakest, and I do agree with that. I, I don't, by the way, just to say, I, I don't like Countdown, I think that's rubbish, but I think Losing It is one of their best songs ever. I love Losing It. I, I mean, I still quite, I do like every song, I would say, but I do think they are, you know, again, ranking the entire album. I think those two last songs are, are the at the bottom. Well, okay, I don't agree on losing it. Do agree on Countdown. Mm, fair enough. So so what other songs would you pick out? Um, I mean, the one that jumped out at me immediately was The Weapon. Oh, really? Which, yeah, it's just like it's almost disco, isn't it? It's, that got me straight. And the one that sort of took a little while to jump out, but I think is the other track that is above everyone else, is the Analog Kid. Oh, yeah, I, I love the Analog Kid. That's definitely at the top of my list. It's great to hear some proper Alex and riffing as well, which he does feel very absent from in Subdivisions which, because with all the keyboards because apparently they recorded the keyboards first and therefore Alex Lyson was kind of thinking, well what the hell am I supposed to do with the guitar, there's no space left all those frequencies are taken up with the keyboards so he was kind of doing this Andy Summers fairly sort of bright rhythm chords which you can hear in Subdivisions and to me that's not what the point of a power trio of virtuoso musicians is about it's not about some fairly basic keyboards that are just filling out and making noise. So when you get the analog kit and you get this Alex license thrashing away with some really proper guitar, you think, oh, great, here we go. And to me, that's what Rush should, should sound like, that kind of 80s Rush. Should, that analog kit and pretty much every other track on the album, to me, is like, yeah, absolutely. That's, what, that's how they should be trying to capture this idea that they've got about being sharper and poppier and shorter songs and all that stuff. So, yeah, absolutely, analog kit, love it. Okay, so that's on the list. I also have um, Digital Man, Losing It, and New World Man. I quite like Chemistry as well, but not as much. And I don't mind The Weapon, but not as much as the other ones. Okay, yeah. I agree with Chemistry. It's sort of down the bottom of my list as well. Yeah, New World Man or Digital Man? Which do you prefer? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, to me, New World Man, up to this point, is their best pop song. This is why I was disagreeing about the uh, spirit of the radio. Because I've the spirit of radio, sorry. I think New World Man is just a brilliant pop song. Uh, Digital Man, I think, is a more interesting song and has it's you know practically you know it's it's got all of the reggae stuff in again. So I would, I think Digital Man's probably a more interesting song. So I'd probably include that. Okay. I was going to, when you said it's like their best pop song, I think right. Okay, let's put that on the list. Yeah. And then you okay. just Turned it all around. I don't mind which way around you you conclude from that. I was just saying Digital Man. I think it's probably a more interesting song, but I. Conclude what you will from my ramblings. Well, it's hard because you basically just said they're both really good, but for different reasons. Well, that's because that's the truth. Yeah. Blame Brush. I think, uh, let's go for New World Man. Go okay. for the pop. 
Fine. We already have one of the um, police reggae ones because yeah, we picked vital okay. signs. And we've got another one potentially coming up on the next album as well. So, so where does Signals go? Do you want the top? How high? I had it second below Moving Pictures. Where do, where do you have it? That's a good question. It's the point of the podcast. I think I would put it above. Above Moving Pictures? Uh, yeah, because I think overall, I think I like it just a little bit more. Because it started way behind Moving Pictures when I started listening. But there's not a lot in it. If you feel strongly well, on it, I'm happy to leave it as it is. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, th- I think oh, it's one of these things where I think probably Moving Pictures is objectively the, the stronger of the two. But I personally enjoy Signals more. Uh, but as I said before, they're kind of for nostalgic reasons. So I don't know how useful that is. It doesn't really travel that uh, that that point. So maybe we leave it second place. And if you want, because I know that I, I know that you're not that happy with Russian Fly by Night. So if it, you could, if you want, you can swap the order of those two around as a kind of compensation. Um. Okay. I don't know why I'm saying this. No, but... it's, it's completely irrelevant, isn't it? Like a little... Well, I'm just thinking if, if you're letting me have the top two, I'll let you have the bottom two as it stands. I don't think they're going to remain the bottom two, but... Uh, no, I'm pretty sure they're that, not. That was my think. That was my think. I, I don't feel particularly strongly that Signal should be second, but I, I just kind of feel the more objective truth is Moving Pictures is objectively better. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I, yeah, I, I would put Signals above, I think. I think it does have the edge over Moving Pictures. Well, shall, shall, we, um, shall we put it above then and just be different? Because it is my favourite of those two. So we accept that this is an idiosyncratic list. Let's just let's just go for that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it doesn't even reflect our own personal views, does it? Because we're mashing them together, so... Well, yeah, okay, but... And that's why I'm okay with swapping Russian fly-by-night. I keep seeing it on the list, and I, I just kind of feel like I want to mention it, because I know that you'd prefer those the yeah. other way around. It, it, it has been bugging me. I mean, mainly just from an entertainment, you know, just think like if you're going to put one of them on to listen to and actually have fun, I think you would put Rush on over the, over Fly By Night. Or I it, definitely it may, would. Yeah, well, I might because I would want to listen to Here Again and Working Man, whereas on Fly By Night, I'd only want to listen to Biter and the Snow Dog. So, yeah, okay, let's. That, that does actually feel a bit better now I'm looking at it. So, I'm nervous about signals being top. But anyway, let's uh, let's leave it. One thing that's quite interesting about this time of Rush's career, because you were saying before about them being a happy band, I think this is the point where that's possibly being tested. Because Alex wasn't happy. Although he, he was very excited about a lot of the new sounds and all of this stuff, and he was just as up for moving on from Terry Brown as everyone else. He was... he Sort of afterwards, looking back, he said he wasn't happy. He didn't really say much at the time, because he's such an easygoing, sort of funny guy. Um, he just sort of lets it all go past and then afterwards comes back on it but it does feel like he was less happy and Geddy was being a bit more the leader of the band at this point although it was never explicit but he was taking a lot more interest in the business side in the production um in in all of those decisions so it did kind of feel like the dynamic of the band was changing and Geddy was taking a bit more of a front leadership role Alex was a bit unhappy feeling a bit disconnected so there is a there is a change in 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 that sort of happiness I think the fact that there's still three people made it very easy and there were still three very nice, very mature guys who loved each other and didn't want a problem helped a lot. So they never really got to any serious problem. But it isn't quite the happy camp it was. Yeah, I think that's more going forward, isn't it? I think more with 
great under pressure, which is next, and especially power windows, definitely. Well, I think it started with signals, um, because with Alex Lyson feeling a little bit pushed out to the side, and these kind of keyboard noises taking over the, the, the frequencies that he normally covers with the guitar. So it sort of started now, but it was simmering away. Should we go on to Grace Under Pressure then? Yes, let's. I think um, around this time as well, I think this is when, like, on live they dropped a lot of the prog stuff, didn't they? Yeah. I, I, I've heard, so they kind of, like, really moved in towards the, the more sort of electronic new wave influence stuff. And, and just that was kind of who they were now. And they, they, they weren't really doing much of the, the prog stuff live. I think that's a really important point because I, I remember when I got Grace Under Pressure, I kind of thought who are Rush now? Because I thought you were supposed to be a prog metal band or a prog rock band. And this is, isn't is that. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't quite know who Rush are anymore. Yeah, they have, they have because they have completely changed, haven't they? You've got two Rushes yeah. that are just both really good, but, but actually quite different. Yeah, I think it comes down to the fact of, is a band essentially a business that produces a product? And therefore, you know, when you buy an ACDC album, you know what you're getting. And that's just, that's the product that ACDC produce. Or are you a group of musicians who do what you want? And therefore, that might be completely different, each album, because they, they are different. And, and you're either interested or you're not, and you like some of the albums, you won't like others. And I think I, Rush were the, in that second camp. They were three musicians who just did what they wanted. And I don't think I understood that at the time. Yeah. I mean, to me, musicians are artists, so they should always do what they want. And sometimes what they want is to churn out similar sounding stuff. That's what they like. And there's nothing wrong with that if that's what they want to do. But obviously... some of them are more business acts that produce something that you can, you know, that's predictable. Like, you know, you can predict an ACDC album, you can predict a, a Stones album, whatever, because you know what they produce. They're into doing this. They play, you know, heavy rock or they play blues or whatever they do. And that's their stuff. And you kind of know what's going to happen when you buy that album. And that's perfectly fine, as you say. And that's a perfectly reasonable model. I know that was tension inside the Stones as well around this same time, in fact, about how relevant they should stay or whether they should keep churning out the kind of rock blues stuff. So I think it's kind of an existential question that a lot of bands face. And Rush just kind of went, well, just do what we want. Which wasn't what I wanted at that point from Rush. No, but what they did next was Grace Under Pressure... Yeah, well, that's what I mean. That's not what I wanted them to do next. No. I wanted them to. I wanted them to remake, you know, Signals or Hemispheres or something. Mm. I mean, because it's, again, because it's very synthy and still quite dated, isn't it? It still sound quite eighties. Yeah, I suppose if I can just say about the producer, because they, as I said, they got rid of Terry Brown, and and that's why Signals has that very Terry Brown, very kind of woody and analogy, warm, full feel, which I love. Grace Under Pressure has none of that at all and it's completely different they, they did originally want to get Steve Lillywhite who had done things like XTC and Big Country and he said he was going to produce them and then he let them down at the last minute and went off to work with Simple Minds so they ended up getting this guy called Peter Henderson who wasn't really a producer and wasn't really their first choice and he didn't really sort of take charge in the way that they wanted so it's, I think they were all to find this quite a difficult period Although Pete Tenson was a really great guy, a great engineer and a lovely fella, he wasn't the producer that they needed or wanted who would help them define the sound they wanted to create. So I think they found this a little bit difficult, the whole thing. Yeah, and you found it difficult as well at the time. 
Well, I did, but I, as I said, it was because I was narrowly thinking, this isn't Rush, Rush don't do that. You know, I had my idea about what Rush was supposed to do, and they weren't supposed to do this. But I didn't dislike it, because it's good enough pop. You know, it's good enough on its own, but it just wasn't really Rush. And is, is that what you still think? No. No, this has been a voyage of discovery, hasn't it? This whole eight, revisiting the 80s Rush that we'd sort of dismissed a little bit, perhaps. Uh, no, no... It's still, I, I actually think the sound of the album I don't particularly like because it is, it does sound dated, it's very synthy, it feels a little bit shallow, the songs are too thin, the production's just all throwaway. So I don't particularly like that side of it. But I have to admit, the songs are pretty good. And the first half in particular, I think, is actually really quite strong. It's just that production that I don't like. Although I do think the second half tails off a little bit. So in the end, I think it's okay. It's actually not a bad pop rock album, and it still sounds like Rush, but I just don't like that production. Fair enough. It was as if you're actually reading my notes there, pretty much. <laughs> um, most of those things that I've got written down, you've just said. Basically, I mean, the first half, I think, is as good as anything they've done. You know, that first right. half of the album, the songs-wise, they're all, they're all bangers. And it really, it really does tail off, I think, on side two. But yes, I mean, it, it is sort of overproduced and it's got that sort of 80s datedness. But there's uh, some of the, you know, the side one songs that still shine through as being really, really they're, good They're songs. very good. They're very good. Distant Early Warning's a great pop song and it's just, it's really good. After Image is about a, a friend of theirs who died from, who worked in the studio. And, you know, it, it's just such a wonderful start to it. The way he sort of sings, suddenly you were gone. And there's this kind of really sort of melancholic chord but then it goes into this sort of fairly bright synthy thing. Where it goes, duh, 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 and you think, hang on a minute, we're talking about a dead fella, dead fella here, and he sort of you've got this sort of bright poppy sing, duh, 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 I remember, duh, 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 and you think, hang on, where's that melancholy gone? But they're his happy memories of the fella. I don't know. I just, well, I suppose maybe, but I just kind of thought that was a bit, I sort of, I don't quite know. But but saying that, it is still a really good song. But I just felt a little bit like get the synth out the way it, it's it's making it feel too superficial but it it is a good song and Red Sector A is about Holocaust survivors which given Geddy singing that and his parents were both Holocaust survivors it's quite sort of poignant and it's a, it's a decent song and then The Enemy Within I think is an absolute cracker it's just brilliant it's practically just play straightforward ska music it's, but I think it's just brilliant but then the second half meh it's alright yeah I mean, the, the second half is fine, isn't it? It's just, it really doesn't stand up that well against side A, basically. Not against the first half, no. Yeah. I think be- Between the Wheels is pulled out in, in the book as being like a, a biggie. But to me, it just feels a little bit of a dirge, a bit bland. And so perhaps it could have been good if it had been recorded differently, produced differently. I don't know, but for me, it doesn't come through. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, I have it as my least favourite track, that one. Oh, do you? I think... The general consensus is Red Lenses is the is the dreadful one on here. Yeah, that's my least favourite. I didn't realise that was consensus, but that is my least favourite. Yeah. I have watched a lot of ranking favourite Rush right. songs, <laughs> uh, YouTube stuff, in the last couple of weeks. And also, you can go on Spotify listening, so you can see right. how much each track has been listened to. So, like, Red Lenses has been listened to significantly less than every other track. Oh, yeah. I can see that now. Yeah, now I find that quite interesting. You see, Distant Early Warning, by far and away the, the most popular track on this uh, album, followed by Red Sector A. 
quite surprised to see enemy within quite a lot lower the same as after image but those four the first four the side one tracks sorry are way ahead of everything else as 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 we are saying so there there you go we are right yeah so which tracks do you want to pick off this well i, I the enemy within and probably distant early warning but i would very happy with after image as well okay that's good because i think if i was doing a, a top 10 rush songs i would very much expect after image to be on it Right, fair enough. This is without having the confidence of actually having done that, so that might not be true. But I do really right. love it, so I would like to pick After Image. And okay. I would agree with the enemy within as the uh, the one to go with that. Okay, great. Let's do that. Where are we going to rank it then? That is a good question. I'm not really prepared. So it's, you see, I think it's better than Permanent Waves. I, do you know what? I was When I was thinking about this, I don't have it better than Permanent Waves but I thought I was going to have an argument with you here because I was going to say, I think it's better than Farewell to Kings. Or, no, sorry, let me get this right. Below Farewell to Kings. Just below Farewell to Kings. So above Caress of Steel. Okay. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I'm happy with it there, but obviously that is also above Permanent Waves, which is slightly against your thinking. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, it is, but okay. So are you happy with that? Yeah, let's move on. Okay, so the next one. The next one is Power Windows, which, again, a change of producer because they weren't happy with Pete Henderson. So they're getting this Peter Collins fella who had worked with things like Nick Kershaw, your favourites from your childhood. Indeed. So he was very much into that. He was really, really opinionated about it being 80s pop was the thing, synth sounds were the thing. He didn't like Geddy's voice and told him so. He was, you know, he was really kind of he, he changed his mind about all these things by the way because he really persuaded Gary to get to come down a couple of octaves but um and really kind of was against using guitar guitar's dead you know all of this kind of stuff he changed his mind on all of these once he really got to know rush and produced some of their later albums but at this point he was like mr opinionated mr 80s pop nick kershaw type of pop so quite a different approach from a, for a band like rush yeah, although Nick Kershaw played guitar, I'd like to point out. Well, yeah, but you could barely hear it in the mix. Yes, it's not high in the mix, I'll grant you. And it certainly didn't sound like a guitar the time it had been through Peter Collins's production desk. Well, he did a good job with Nick anyway. Well, did he do a good job with Rush there? What do you think of Power Windows? Um, I think it's really, really dated. Obviously, it's incredibly synthy. It's quite poppy. Yeah. I mean, some of it... That's just like, like Big Money, for example, which some people seem to think is really good. I just think that, I mean, the lyrics are a bit embarrassing. Although musically, it's it's a decent song. I just find it, I can't, it's too dated for me. I just imagine sort of hazy videos with them with big shoulder pads and mullets for every song. Which is quite accurate, I think. And I like little bits of songs and not complete songs with one exception. I think there's one really good song on here. Oh, okay. Don't tell us yet. Don't tell us yet. I, I think my view is not that different. I mean, I don't like the sound of it. It's too thin and poppy. It's too synthy. There's no point in having three great musicians and filling it up with just synth synthesized noise. Just no point. I don't like... It's too vocal-led, which again is very another pop thing. It's all about the vocals. Was Rush Roar is about more, much more about the music. I think the... 
the lyrics generally I think Neil Peart on, on the whole is getting better and better and better through this period although I agree there's a couple of it's always a bit clunky here and there and there's a couple of stumbles I, I think the Big Money is actually a pretty decent song the bass playing is just phenomenal on that and the uh, the drumming is just it's just wonderful on that as it is in a lot of it although I don't particularly like where he's taking his bass sound it's becoming thinner and punchier I think he played I think it's called a wild bass if I remember rightly I don't know if you remember from this period but his bass went from being the sort of big Rickenbacker to being one of those little headless bases. Yes, I do. And I, I bought one myself because I was influenced by wanting to sound like Geddy Lee, and I, I got as far as actually buying the bass. Uh, didn't actually get as far as playing it, but, you know, half the battle. But yeah, I never quite liked his bass sound as much at this level, although he's, he's still very good, obviously. <laughs> so I, I kind of agree with you. I do kind of like the big money more than you're saying, I think. And there is one other song that I think is up there as well with the big money. And then a couple of the songs I quite like. But to be honest, if I never heard this album again, I wouldn't mind. But I've really tried to like it and tried to give it a listen because it is Rush's favourite album themselves from this period. They, they really rate it. So I've really tried, but it's not for me. It's not for me. So what's your favourite song on here? Marathon. That silence is slightly worrying. Now, I was waiting for you to ask me what my favourite song was. Oh, right, I thought you'd just say, I didn't realise you needed the bloody prompt. Oh, no. What's your favourite song, Gordon? You have to say it like that, do you? Well, you've put me in that position. Oh, OK. My favourite song, thank you for asking, is Marathon. <laughs> oh, well, there we go. I think it's by far the best song on the album. Yeah. And if and I, I don't do hear re- the rest of it ever again, I'll be quite happy. But Marathon I do really like. Yeah, Marathon is a great song. And again, the bass playing's phenomenal. And I remember them playing this when I saw them live. Because I do remember Geddy Lee saying, you know, this next song is called Marathon. And I thought, oh, is it? Because I was hoping to play something older, you know. But it is a really good song. I like it a lot more now than I did then. So is The Big Money your second favourite? Is that what you want? Yeah. Well, I'm not bothered because like you, I don't care as much about the other songs. But yes, it would be my second favourite song on this album. Fair enough. We'll put it on because I don't really care. And ranking the album, I had it above Fly By Night, okay, and above and above Rush. Oh, okay, because I had those the other way around anyway. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I'm happy with. I mean, I would have it at the bottom, definitely. I don't. I. I mean, it, like when I say I don't, if I never hear it again, I'll be okay. That's that's not. That sounds a little too harsh, because it is a an okay album. There's some decent songs on here. The songwriting's pretty good. It's just the production, it's the the synths, it's all of that stuff. But it is there's, there's, there is some stuff in here. It's not as throwaway as we may have implied hmm. by saying we never want to hear it. <laughs> well, I think it, that's why I'm kind of like sort of searching for something in here that's actually okay. But I have zero affection for this album. Zero. I mean, I would say about at the moment our three bottom albums are Rush, Fly By Night and Power Windows. I don't think I would put any of them on and sit and actually listen to the album. No, true. I would just... There are tracks on there that I like. So I'm not going to argue strongly. So if you if you want Power Windows above Rush, I'm okay with that. Um, no, let's leave it below Rush because I, I think, like you're saying, I might go back... I would go back and listen to Here Again and Working Man. I probably won't go back and listen to Marathon and Big Money because I'm just not that bothered just because the sound of the album puts me off. That dated, echoey... 80s, thinny, poppy. Rush is so much better than that. 
Yeah, I agree. So shall we move on? Move, move onwards and downwards. To uh, hold your fire. Yeah, another Peter Collins. So they keep, they keep Peter Collins on. And Neil describes this as the sort of the introverted cousin of Power Windows, which he says he's quite extroverted. And he thinks this is the more sort of introverted side of the same kind of sound that they were going for. And he holds this album with a, a lot of affection. He really quite liked this album. Yeah, that makes sense, I suppose, if they, if they like likes Power Windows as well, because it is similar in a lot of ways, isn't it? There is apparently yeah. about the same amount of synth on it. It's just lower in the mix. And it is still sort of wildly overproduced and sounds horribly 80s to me. So it's it's yeah. got that sense that um, Power Windows does too. So when we were chatting earlier in the week, you hinted as to your opinion on this album. So you go first. What ha- what do you do make of it? Well, it is... I, I'd, I'd listened to it again this morning and again turned it up quite loud and, and really trying to sort of be as fair as I possibly can. And just all the same things about Power Windows are true in the sense that it's it's too poppy, it's too vocal-led, it's too synthy, it's too thin, the production's weak. But unlike Power Windows, the songs are worse. So it's kind of like a, the perfect storm the other way of everything that's wrong with Rush for me ends up on this album. It's even got the worst cover, although we're not talking about covers. So for me, it's it's my least favourite Rush album by a country mile at this point. Fair enough. I think I pretty much agree with all that. I think that it's, it, is, it's, it is incredibly bland, I think, as well, which, you know... Bland's a good word. You wouldn't put on any of their other albums. Yeah, no, bland is exactly the right word. And it's got that horrors like Tai Shan, which it, it, there's very few Rush songs that I think, oh, God, you know, like, I don't want that, Ugh. you know, like, ear pain. <laughs> but Tai Shan is kind of getting to that point, and it's embarrassing, and it feels patronising as well. And I just, no, sorry, fellas. And there's bits in things like Lock and Key, you know, where it just feels like the lyric there is just, it's far too clumsy. Uh, uh, it's, there's just moments like that where you just think oh no come on you know that's not good enough and there's too many moments like that where you just think well either that's just not good enough or that's just bland you know you've forgotten you're listening to it you're three songs in you think oh god I forgot to listen to the last three songs it just doesn't catch my attention I guess that's what Neil meant by it being the introverted side it is it does take more concentration yeah, but only unfortunately, it's concentration to keep yourself awake, isn't it? Which isn't really good. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you able to pick any songs then? Well, sort of reluctantly. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I I, I can pick two songs that are my favourites of the album, shall we say? Okay. And I I would pick "Time Stand Still" and "Turn the Page." Okay. I had um, "Force Ten, "Time Stand Still," "Open Secrets," and "Turn the Page" as being the four stronger t- tracks and not massively in love with any of those tracks so happy with any combination of those four so time stands still and turn the page by the sound of it yeah yeah i'm sorry i'm not love with in love with any of it either so because even oh hold on sorry i'm learning to use a new mouse with my left hand okay so there that's at the bottom and it's staying there isn't it yeah it's definitely at this point the worst rush album but the, but they liked it and they decided to tour afterwards, and they came to Europe, and that's when I saw them live. So the set list was rather dominated by Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, which was really disappointing. But it was still great to see them. Yeah, and that was had that um, not very good live album as well, Show of Hands, 
wasn't it? Which I'm, yeah, and, and the video was taken at Birmingham NEC, which is where I was, um, although it was filmed on the first and second night, and I was there on the third night, so I'm not actually in it, so don't watch it looking out for me. But the actual video version's quite good, because you see a lot more of the kind of the fun stuff. You know, the 2112 and the uh, La Village Tangiato and all of that kind of stuff. You don't just have to trawl through Power Windows Live and hold your fire live. Yes, fair enough. That's, um, I'll not look out for you on it then if I do watch it. No, no, don't worry about it. Yeah. But I watched it quite a lot at the time because, you know, I was really still quite into Rush at this point and, and desperately hoping each album would take me back to what I loved about Rush. And the next one was Presto. It was, yes. Yeah. So we're up to 1989 now. Yeah, and I was I was losing interest now. This is kind of around the time my interest was waning because I was kind of 19 years old and just different things were happening, just interested in different kinds of music a little bit more. But I did buy it, and I did put it on my turntable, and you know, excitedly hoping it would it would spark some new excitement. What did you think of it? I think it's quite similar to Hold Your Fire, with the exception that it's just got a slightly better sound to it overall. I just like it's it's not as dated, and you know, it's obviously the guitars move back in, the synths are being phased out here, so it's. I think that that synth guitar mix is is a lot better. It still has datedness elements to it. It's not thoroughly free of that. The songwriting, I think, is similarly poor in the fact that it's not dreadful but quite bland. And I think I couldn't tell you how any of the songs went at the moment. Now looking at the list, oh, some <laughs> Superconductor was quite is quite catchy, isn't it? I could, yeah. I could sing you that if you were. Oh, some of them, you, some of them, I could definitely. So yeah, I think it's, it's kind of more of the same. But they, I think they have actually improved the sound overall. But it's still quite bland, and it is it's fifty two minutes because of course we're moving away from vinyl now, aren't we? And you just think, well, this still this this was vinyl. I bought it on vinyl. Yes, and it does actually say side one is a lot longer than side two, so it's quieter. So turn it up. But so it, but yes, it's getting a bit long. And they could have very easily cut a couple of songs out of this, a couple of the weaker tracks, I think. But Rush never did. They they used everything. There is no vault of unreleased um, rarities. Rush used everything. And there were times like this where you wish they hadn't. Because there's definitely some bits they could have cut off five minutes and cut out a couple of the weaker songs easily. And it would have been a better album, I think. Definitely. But I agree with you totally. I mean, it's a different producer, by the way. Peter Collins didn't come back because he said, because Hold Your Fire didn't go platinum. It's the first album that didn't go platinum. And he sort of felt guilty. So they did ask him back, but he said no. So they went to a guy called Rupert Hine, who I think is a really interesting guy. And he gave them this much fuller, more substantial, meaty, guitar-y sound that's still quite bright and poppy. But he was trying to bring in that more guitar, make it feel more substantial. And I think you can hear that at the very beginning of the first song, Show Don't Tell, the first sort of couple of chords, you think, oh, blimey, oh, this is good. You know, I like this. And then it sort of immediately collapses into quite a bland song. And that's really disappointing, because at the beginning you think, oh, God, I can see where Rush could go here. And it sounds quite updated and rocky and fun, but not 70s old-fashioned rock. It really feels like they've captured something, but then they let it go. Within, like, about three chords, it's gone. And it's become, show me, don't tell me. It's just become this sort of fairly fairly bland song. But yeah, there are definite moments where you just think, oh yeah, I really like the sound here. But on the whole, I totally agree with you. I think it's the songwriting's bland. This isn't their best material. There's some good stuff on here. There's some great sounds, but it doesn't quite hang together. That's good enough, in my view. 
So, are you able to pick a couple of songs off it? Oh yeah, there are, unlike its predecessor, there are songs here that I actually quite like. So for example, I do like The Pass, I quite like The Warpaint's alright, I quite like Scars, I like Available Light, I think that's a really good vocal performance from Geddy there, and it's really quite moving. And I don't even mind Chain Lightning, but I wouldn't put it on because of that thing at the end where it goes, that's nice, which I just, no, no, not having that. Okay, so, um, yeah, I'm happy with the pass going on. I think that's um, in my top two. I quite, I've got sort of War Paint, Anagram and Red Tide. Available Light's not far off. I'm happy with that if you'd rather have that. Yeah, I mean, for me, Available Light is my favourite song on that album. And it's a bit more ballady as well, which you don't get as much from Rush. So maybe that and the pass would be quite a nice combination. Although I think I'm, I think I'm sort of a bit out on my own with that one because it doesn't have that many listens. And the Martin Popoff book said available like that's definitely a song the band would like to re-record. And uh, the band have said this is an album they'd like to re-record, which I actually disagree because I think it's recorded quite well. It's the songs that aren't good enough. If I was going to re-record an album, I'd re-record Grace Under Pressure or re-record Power Windows or even Signals. I wouldn't re-record this because the material's just not as strong. Yeah, I agree on that. There does seem to be a sort of general consensus that the the recording and production on on this is really poor. But it's like you, you know, it's the songs that are poor, not not the yeah. not the production. I think the production's great on this. I re- I really do. I think it's just such a breath of fresh air after the the tightness of the the previous two. That's really not the problem. So where are we going to rank it? Well, I. Th- don't really know. Prob- prob- well, above Hold Your Fire. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure whether I'll put it much further. No, I'm quite happy with that. Okay, we'll leave it there then. So, that's part two. Okay, so we're back for part three. So, there's been another big gap Yeah. where we've gone off and... Been on holiday. Well, yes, I have been on holiday as well. I had a week off from listening to Rush. But only that, and we've been doing the last section. Although we're, I think we're slightly into the last section of Rush anyway, because I think sort of the third version of Rush starts with Hold Your Fire. Do you? Yeah. Oh, I don't. Explain your rationale there. There are fr- three versions of Rush for me. 70s prog, 80s sort of synth rock, and then we move into this more mature AOR, MOR Rush. And I think the first album of that is Hold Your Fire and granted it's a transition record in between the two but I would say it's the first first volume of that Alright, oh, well I, I don't recognise that, I mean to me it's pure 80s rush for me it's that all in that kind of for me, for me I think there are more than three rushes because you've got you've got so many, you've got that early phase of Fly By Night and, and then you've got your 70s prog, then you've got that kind of eight, the, the sort of good 80s if you like the perm waves through to Grace Under Pressure, which gets slowly poppier and poppier. And then you've got the rubbish 80s, which to me brings us up to where we are now. And then you've got sort of going into 90s where they're sort of rediscovering the guitars again, which is perhaps your sort of AOR-ish. I'm not sure I'd quite describe it that way. But to me, this... I know, I, I don't know, Hold Your Fire to me is very much banging the kind of rubbish 80s, thinny, rubbishy, synthy, roppy, rocky, poppy thing. That said, in the holiday that I just had during that sp- that during that break... Somebody did say to me that a friend of mine who's into Rush said he'd really rediscovered Hold Your Fire and thought it was a really good album, which I was quite shocked about. 
because I yeah. still maintain it belongs down the bottom there. I think it's down the bottom. Um, I, I have listened to it a few times. I've even listened to it today as well. And it, it is growing on me slightly. Oh, well, maybe there's more there. Maybe I need to go back to it. But I've sh- sh- Well, let's move on anyway. Let's... Um, because I think this section now from the 1990s is Rolled the Bones, the last album I actually bought at the time it was released. So that is the next one. And it's a Rupert Hine production again, the same guy as Presto. Yeah, you're getting ahead of yourself a little, though. Oh, am I? Yeah, because have you done any research on this third phase? Oh, sorry. I know you have. I'm yeah. just giving you the feeding question for that. Yeah. Well, yes, Gordon, I have. Um, I read the third Martin Popoff book, which was um, called Driven, which was about this whole period from Roll Your Bones all the way through to the the end of Rush. So, yes, I have read that and, you know, done the usual little bits of here and there on on YouTube. But that's the only substantial thing that I've actually read. You? Yeah, well, I've continued reading my album-by-album book. I've gone through it in the phases. And I've also watched the documentary Classic Albums on... 2112 and moving pictures which of course has no relevance to this section at all but i did watch it well there are some bits from reading the book that that actually probably have more relevance on previous sections and i think this is one of the flaws of the way martin popos put together these books and they are good books so in general i'm not criticizing but this is a criticism because he just copy pastes a large chunk of interview text he doesn't necessarily he doesn't use that to tell the story of what happened particularly well so, for example, there's a bit in this third book where Alex Lyson's talking about his experience on Signals. Now, I would have rather have read that when we were, when we were reading about Signals. I didn't particularly want to read about it when we were reading about Test for Echo or whatever in the mid-90s, because it's not relevant there. And I would have okay. rather Martin Popoff told me the story. Because when he actually tells the story, he's very good. He's a good writer. He just quotes too much. But he also, as I said, he quotes out of sync. So you're getting Alex Lyson saying about how frustrating he found that whole period and... You know, they're, they're not proper instruments and it was only him that seemed pushed out the way. You know, when you're filling the middle of the, the frequencies with all of this synthy sound, you're not really getting in the way of the drums or the bass or the vocal. You're getting in the way of the guitar. So it was always him. So he's the one, you know, how frustrating he found that period and the tensions that that created in, in the band and stuff. I wanted to read about it then. I didn't want to read about it 15 years later. Yeah, so the interviews are all chronological as opposed to actually what the subject is. Yes, exactly, because he said it then. That's when it was in the book, rather than what the subject is, yes. And one other piece of sort of homework you had from, I think, from uh, from the first bit we did, was to go back and listen to Hemispheres, because I was a lot more positive about it than you were. So you have had a re-listen, and have you, know, have, have you changed your opinion? Has it grown on you more? Well, we're talking about the first half of the, the Hemispheres album, so the main kind of Cygnus piece, and... Uh, no, not really. I mean, it, it's something that I still like, but don't love. It's something that I still think is okay. But no, I, I wouldn't say I particularly think it's better. So no, not really. My opinion on that hasn't much changed. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, because I was pushing to get Hemispheres moved above moving pictures on our ranking. So would you be resisting that? Yes, I would. I, I've thought about it. and I, uh, It's one of those things I've, I've sort of gone back and thought a lot about those albums and Hemispheres I loved, but I kind of loved mainly because of La Villa Strangiato. And I realised that's just kind of one song doing a lot of work in, in pushing that album near the top. Uh, but I do think it's a good album, and I do like the song Hemispheres as well. Not For me, it's not as good as Moving Pictures. It's not as sharp or as punchy or as energetic. or as um, I wouldn't go back and listen to it as much as I would Moving Pictures. Hmm. So no, for me, for me, absolutely not. 
but sort of related to that was me going back and trying to listen again to Permanent Waves because you were more negative about that than I was. And I used to love that album. And having gone back and listened to it, because you sort of said you didn't think it really quite worked and there was a couple of duffers on there and wasn't that great. And I kind of saw it a little bit more through your eyes and I thought, well, yeah, maybe this isn't quite as good as I thought. So, so I'm kind of much more comfortable with that one being a little bit ranked a bit lower now. So I've sort of come a little bit round to your way of thinking on that. Oh, well, that's good. That's some progress. Just being, agreeing a bit more with you is not what the word progress means. Well, to me it does. Well, there's a whole lot to unpick there about your character, but let's not do that. Let's not air our dirty washing in public. So let's let's move on now onto um, Roller Bones, first album of the '90s. I'm expecting you you won't still not going to be that keen on this one because it's still quite poppy by Rush's standards. Is that is that the case? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because I mean, it, it it's not poppy enough. It's not catchy enough to be proper pop. Um, but at the same time, it's not raunchy enough to be proper rock. And it feels to me like it's... I, I remember getting it and putting it on and just thinking, I don't, I don't really know what Russia for anymore. I, I remember thinking that because, you know, I mean, this was around, this was the 90s. So you've got that kind of detuned sloppy guitars of grunge. You've got, you know, Guns N' Roses. You've got uh, bands like Red Hot Chili Peppers playing a kind of really funky rock. You've got REM, Jane's Addiction. You've got people like the Stone Roses in that kind of more jangly. So you've got all of this other stuff, guitar music coming along. And then you've you've got this kind of, well, it's not really poppy enough. It's not really rocky enough. It's a bit thin. It's a bit, the lyrical themes are reasonably strong, I think. But it all, so you've kind of got that slightly nerdy thing going on, which Rush do quite well. But I don't know. To me, it just feels like it's it's neither one thing nor the other. And it's not really, there's some good songs on it, I suppose, but. I don't know. I just don't think this sound that great. What and do you the think? controversial rap bit? Well, we do have to go there, don't we? We do have to mention this. And um, I think it's a misstep. And I don't think it's okay to say that it was sort of a bit of humour and people should have taken it that way. I think it was... I just don't think it worked. It didn't work musically. It didn't work humorously. It just sounds like this kind of... I don't know. How would you describe it? It sounds like you're sort of your granddad trying to do a bit, trying to sound relevant by doing a bit of hip hop. And it, it just, I know that's not what they were doing, but it just, it just doesn't work for me. It doesn't work as rap. It doesn't work as spoken word. It doesn't work musically. It just sounds a bit off. And if it was a joke, what are they joking about? Mm. You know, I, I don't think it supposed, is a joke. Well, they, they kind of say it is in, in the, um, in the interviews in the book. They're kind of saying it was a bit tongue in cheek. They were just, uh, you know, lampooning rap. But, you know, if you're supposed to be these kind of like, open-minded musical explorers and there's this you know powerful new music coming onto the scene doing this kind of lame you know imitation of it this lame satire i don't know for me it doesn't work i mean the bits i read about it was the fact that they couldn't decide in between doing a homage or a satirizing and they ended up really doing neither and it's, it is just getty's voice put through a couple of machines or something that sound a bit weird but yeah Make it i mean i think i think it's okay I mean, obviously, it'd probably be better if he just sang the words, but... Oh, I think it's dreadful. I don't have strong feelings on it. I do. I think it's dreadful. It's a misstep. It's it's a mistake. It's it's poor satire, or it's dreadful homage, whichever it is. Yeah. Well, I think it's somewhere in between the two, isn't it? That's what they... Well, I, I read it was more satire. It was a, it was a poking fun at, at, at rap, which... Again, I don't. I don't think it was a particularly appropriate target, considering that rap around that time was actually pretty, pretty good. You know, you were 
Public Enemy and people like that were coming through and NWA and all of that. You know, you had this really powerful new style of music that was knocking people's socks off. So to get these kind of old rockers doing this sort of lame satire, to me, uh, it just felt, I don't know, to me it just feels like that lands quite poorly. Mm. I, I, you know, Rush's, Rush's thing is amazing musicianship, massively complex music, slightly nerdy lyrics, um, what they call math rock, you know, as in a sort of, sort of it's, over, it's overly complicated. Yeah. That's their thing. So just doing a bit of crap rap. I don't know. I don't approve. Fair enough. I think, I think we've uh, got that. I mean, overall, I, th- I think the album sounds nice. The, the you know, the, the production and the sound is, is good. The keyboard and organ sound I really like a lot more as well. I mean, there's a, there's a lot less of it, but when it's there, it's more more like a sort of normal organ. And the, the 80s sort of synth seems to have gone. Although there is very much, I think, a nod to 80s pop influence here. It's not all gone. But it is somewhere in between a sort of rock and pop album, which... Um, I do quite like it. I think it's an enjoyable album. It's it's nowhere near obviously their best, but I, I do enjoy. I did enjoy the album listening to it. Well, you seem to like it more than I do. So yes. what, what? What? I mean, I do think there are some good songs on it. Uh, I, I don't particularly like the sound of it, although I think it starts well, and and there's some you know good bits here and there. But no, I I, I don't find it a satisfying listen really at all. So what what tracks would you pick? Well, I think. Agreeing with you on the fact that it starts well, I, I would pick the first two. That's Dreamline and Bravado. So yeah, I, I do agree with you about the first two tracks. They're probably my favourite two. And I think it sort of starts reasonably well and it ends reasonably well. But I, none of, I don't love any of it. So I'm quite happy with those first two tracks if you want to put those on. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there is a little dip and then it, it gets a bit stronger again. But um, I obviously liked it a bit more than you do. Yeah, I mean, we are getting into the phase of CDs now. You mentioned this on the last album, but we are getting into the phase now where things are CDs, so nothing sort of gets thrown away with Rush. It's all, you know, they say they work so hard in every song that they that there's nothing kept back. So the albums just sort of keep getting a bit longer and longer, and I think they get too long, and some songs that aren't quite good enough tend to make it. So I wonder if this album would be stronger if it was kind of pruned a little bit. Yeah, I think it's true of, of, of most of their albums sort of from now on. I mean, Roller Bones is 48 minutes, which isn't too bad, actually. No, it's only true. probably one song too long in terms of length. I think most of them would be better for holding a couple of tracks back and just making them B-sides or something. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I, and we'll get onto that, I think, as you said, more in, in the next cluster of albums, where that mm. becomes more apparent when the albums just seem to get longer and longer. And there just doesn't seem to be that time limit on them anymore which is obviously quite a good discipline before yeah so where do you want to rank roll the bones well i would i mean for me it's reasonably low down but it's not you know it, it goes a sort of around probably above power windows something like that so in between russian power windows yeah yeah okay I can, i'm comfortable with that oh, we're in the okay. right zone okay well there we go thought you'd be pushing for it being higher knowing you well, I would only put it one higher if I was doing that, so I wouldn't right. put it above Caress of Steel. All right, well, let's leave it where it is then. And let's move on. Yep. So the next next one is Counterparts, which is 2004. We're back to our friend Peter Collins, the producer who did Power Windows and Hold Your Fire, but he's changed his tune quite a lot by this point, and he's become much more... Uh, he's, he's got more into Rush, basically. He kind of... Uh, 
instead of trying to turn them into Van Halen, he's actually really got much more into them. And you can really hear the difference in this. And the, and the engineer, um, nicknamed Caveman, was really into getting Alex Lyson back out into the studio and playing next to his amps rather than sitting in the control room. And really kind of was trying to record the drums as a single instrument rather than mic them up separately, which is what Neil Peart prefers because he likes the different, the complexity of having it mic each drum individually mic'd up. Um, so he's trying to go for a much baser, rockier, straightforward sound, I guess, with this. So it does sound to me quite a lot different than the previous album. What do you think of it? I really like it. I think it's one of their best for a few for for a while yeah i mean they've got they've kept sort of that sort of organ piano more natural keyboard sound and, and it's not that prevalent like they did in the last album it's obviously a, it's a lot heavier the overall sound i think is really great the songs i think are slightly blander and they don't really have as many hooks as they have had certainly in the previous album but other than that i mean it it, it is sort of consistently okay throughout and then that's probably being a bit harsh on it because I, I do enjoy the album, I do think it's great, but I don't. I'm not sure there's like massively standout tracks on it. It's quite consistent throughout. I I think I, th- there's a lot I would agree with you on that. I mean, I, I do love the sound of it. Completely agree with you. We're really back to that kind of brilliant heavy riffing of Alex, which I really love, and the sort of busy lead bass and drums and all of that. I like the fact there's more instrumental gaps, and it's a bit less of the kind of. Loud instruments, let's get quiet while Geddy sings because he can't sing through the mix anymore because he doesn't sing high enough. There's a bit less of that. There's a bit more of him kind of, you know, a bit less of that quiet, loud thing. So I kind of quite, I quite like that going back to the more rock style where he sings through the mix more. Uh, the lyrics, I think, are getting a little bit advice column in places, which starts to feel a little bit frustrating. And Neil Peart himself says he, he, he can be a bit guilty of that. Um, but I kind of made the decision that I kind of like his lyrical style. And it has to be a sort of a conscious choice that you've got to embrace his lyrical style with good grace or not. Because it's kind of it's kind of nerdy and it's sometimes a bit obviously written by the somebody who isn't the singer. But there is a certain charm to it. So you've got to just decide whether you like his lyrics or not. But I think occasionally they do feel a bit clunky. And that comes through on this album. Uh, but on the whole, I really like it. I totally agree with you. I think it's a, a really strong album. Love the sound of it. There's, for me, there's quite a lot of songs I really, really do like on this album. There's definitely a two or three that could be cut out and it would be much better. But yeah, great album. Brilliant comeback. It feels relevant and I've listened to it loads and still thinking, yeah, I really enjoy this. Yeah, I, I like this more that every time I listen to it. Yeah. I just like it a little bit more. Yeah. Which which tracks would you cut off? Which would I cut off? Well, mm. um, I don't like at all Stick It Out. I really don't like that and I don't like The Speed of Love. So those two would be definitely hacked out. And the album to me would be much better for that. It would be much tighter. Yeah. You see, this one's at 54 minutes, so it does really need to lose two songs. Well, those would be the two. Would you agree with those two? Would you edit those two out? Um, On my notes, I've got Everyday Glory bottom, but I think that those two are sort of... I would be okay with those two dropping off it. I think it would be fine. And they, they, you know, they're perfectly okay. They could be B-sides as well, as I said. Yeah, but to me, they don't come up to the standard of the other songs on this album, which I think are generally strong. And and it, there's a couple there that I'd rank, I'd rank, you know, really quite high. Well, that was my next question is, because you said there's sort of a few on here that you think are really, really good. Which ones are those? So for me, the top four tracks are Animate, Nobody's Hero, Leave That Thing Alone and Cold Fire. OK. And I do like every other track apart from the two I mentioned which I don't really like. Yeah, fair enough. I think my picking my top two, I think I would pick 
I think Between Sun and Moon, I like best. That is good, yeah. I do like that. And then I would pick one of, I think, probably Cut to the Chase, Double Agent or Cold Fire. Yeah, I I was going to ask you about Double Agent, because it's got that kind of slightly odd spoken word, slightly piratey bit in it. Yeah. And, and I absolutely adore that. I think it's brilliant. And I just love the way the song flows in to leave that thing alone as well. So I kind of, I listened to it, I thought, oh, gosh, I don't know what other people would think of that, but I quite like it. And it's just grown on me increasingly. And they said that was the last one that they recorded. They kind of almost wrote it as they were recording it. And it's deliberately quite goofy, to use Geddy Lee's words. Um, but I really like it. Yeah, I do, yeah. So of of the tracks we both favourited, we overlap on Cold Fire. So shall we put that one on the list? Yeah, that's. I think that's my favourite anyway, so that, that's great. Okay, and... What else did you say was your top one? Between Sun and well, Moon? I said Between Sun and Moon, top. That's okay by me, because that's certainly... As I said, there's only two I don't like, and everything else I really do. So. And where do we rank this one? Good question. Well, for me, pretty highly. I think it goes... I'm going to be controversial. I think it goes up as, as high as sort of 2112, Farewell to Kings area. I didn't think you were going to go that high. So I would definitely put it above permanent waves on our list and then i was then trying to think whether i would put it above grace under pressure and i think i probably would i i would i then struggle a bit to get it any further i, I mean well they're the wrong way around for you anyway aren't they yeah that's my problem you see i would i would put it i'd, I'd be okay with putting it above twenty-one twelve, but not a farewell to kings well let's leave it where it is then because um, that's kind of about right you know in most both of our opinions roughly speaking yeah so sounds good Let's leave it there. Yeah, indeed. I think we're learning to work in zones. You can't be uh, too pedantic because it's uh, someone else's opinion as well. Also, I mean, from this point onwards, from Counterpart onwards, we're talking about albums that I never listened to at the time. I moved on from Rush and was just listening to different stuff. So a lot of this feels fresher to me. So I would be more likely to put Counterparts on than I would 2112, for example, just because it's all newer to me. But I'm not. that doesn't necessarily... You know, trying to take a step back a little bit from that does that mean it's a better album? I'm not sure it is. So that's why I think it's probably in about the right place. Yeah, I've had that. I think with all six albums in this third area, of with continued listens, I have liked them all more. Yeah, it, it's certainly been it's certainly been much more fun than I expected it to be. You know, because by the time you get to the sort of nineties and you're listening to loads of other stuff, and Rush feel a little bit dated, a little bit like what you know what you listen to when you were a teenager. It just doesn't feel like relevant. So actually to go back to it and think, oh God, I missed some really good stuff actually. It's actually quite a nice surprise. Yeah, I agree. I, I was expecting this this section to be a bit of a drag, and, but it hasn't been at all. But talking of a bit of a drag, what about the next album? Yes, let's let's move on. Test for Echo. So you may have just given yourself away a little bit there. I have on purpose. A bit cheeky. So you're not keen? No, I mean, it's, it's a few years... It's a, What year is this now? We are to 1996. So Alex Lifeson has gone off and done his solo album at this point, Victor. So apparently he came back with a lot more confidence and a bit more dictatorial, which is sort of politely quoted, using Neil Peart's description. And so I think this sort of big album was a little bit of a kind of trying to accommodate a lot of strong opinions, but it it just doesn't, it's, it just doesn't sound good to me. The song's just mediocre. Uh, but we're not even mediocre. A lot of them aren't even aren't even mediocre. To me, it's just it, it's just not a great album. I mean, it is Peter Collins. So you would expect it to be better than this, and 
it, but it just feels like you've Alex is into Nine Inch Nails and quite heavier music. Geddy's much more into melodic stuff, and you can hear the difference in his solo album coming that comes later. And it just feels a bit like they never really sorted out that battle between them, and it's just a bit of a mess. And no, I, I don't like it. And after Counterparts, you think well, that was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. Absolute return to form. This is just like oh god, what's this? Yeah, I, I, mean, I largely agree. I think the sound overall is okay, but. I just think it's it's quite weak musically and lyrically. And there are no great songs on here. There's nothing no. that would make a best of Rush in in my book at all. I think it's... and I mean, some of it is, dread, you know, dog years. It's just... Oh, it's awful. And and it's like... Bloody awful. I think the lyrics, though, tail, tail between his ears. That's not a thing, is it? No. Dogs don't do that. That's not, that's that's just because it rhymes with years, isn't it? But it's wrong. Just write something else yeah. that works. Yeah. You can't change the anatomy of a dog just to get a rhyme. Yeah. I mean, you need either a very long tail or very long ears to, to do that. And, and again, it's still not happen. I suppose a very small dog with a fairly long tail, when they put the tail up and it curls around, it's not impossible. But I think it's an unlikely scenario. And to me, it doesn't feel like the sort of the thing I want to be singing about. And when you say tail between your ears, you're meaning a, a different mood to when a dog has its tail up, which is what you would need to achieve that scenario. Well, t- dog having a tail between the ears isn't a specific mood because they don't do it, as we've discussed. So it's not even working on the metaphor level of, you know, you might say tail between his legs, you mean someone who's a bit kind of sheepish. You know, you could. Th- th- there's a metaphor level, but there's no metaphor level with tail between his ears because it doesn't happen. No, but I think it means tails between his legs, so... Wow, it, 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 how can it? It's it almost the fit. opposite. Well, yeah. It means he's grown a long tail and it's up. And coming forward towards his ears, which would presumably yeah. be a, a diff- that would be a different mood than tail yeah, well, this is drooping. Is it your point, though? Yeah. It sort of sounds like it isn't your point. Because if the tail was up and drooping over behind, between his ears, it's obviously quite a perky, lively, happy dog. Whereas tail between his ears implies more like tail between the legs being sheepish or negative or upset i i, I, I i'm tiring of this discussion but i I, mm. feel, I i do feel that your arguments um a little bit mixed up here but never mind the listener will judge judge you harshly for this and yeah. i will well you seem to talk for about five minutes and then agree with me so i'm not agreeing with you not, you did i'm though. not agreeing with you i'm saying that tail between your ears would be perky happy tail between your legs would be sad so you can't you That's say what tail... i said but you're Before saying, you spoke. But you you didn't. You said they was like tail between his ears would be basically a synonym for tail between his legs on the metaphor metaphor level. And it can't be. That was my point. The fact that it, it doesn't work. But it can't be your point you, because you said the other thing was your point. I did not. No. I was saying it doesn't work because they've changed the legs to ears. Well, to I agree rhyme. with you on that. I agree with you it doesn't work. Anyway. Anyway. There's going to have to be some nifty editing by you fella if you want to make yourself uh, sound good on this argument to make it sound make myself right yeah you're gonna have to do some dodgy <laughs> editing well we, we shall see now I, I will be honest in the edit and uh anyway let's let, let's can, can you pick mm. any tracks out of here that you actually think are okay um yeah i mean i would go if i think sort of the the better track shall we say rather than favorite um although technically that's favorite test for echo Totem or Limbo? Um, I certainly agree on Test for Echo. I do. I mean, I don't particularly like it that much, but yes, it is. It is certainly one 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 of the better ones. 
Totem and Limbo, not really. I do prefer Driven and Half the World and Time and Motion. I'm fine with Driven or Time and Motion. Okay. Not really into Half the World. Well, well, Test for Echo we both said, so let's do that. And if you're okay with Driven, let's do Driven. Okay. So where does this go on the ranking? Well, for me, it clusters into the bottom couple of albums, really. Um, It's down there with Hold Your Fire and Presto which are the sort of bottom three albums, all three of which I don't really hold, give any value to. So I would probably put it between Hold Your Fire and Presto, but somewhere down there. All right. Yeah, no, I would too. I think Presto has a little bit more promise in it than Tess for Echo. Okay, well, that's fine by me. Vapor Trails is next. So we're into this century now, so it's uh, 2002. I think we have to mention the obvious tragedies happened now in the in the five-year hiatus between the albums in neil peart's life in particular that his daughter was killed in a car accident and his wife a year later on from cancer so he basically you know pretty much wanted to give up he did say he was retiring and giving up and went on the went around on his motorbike looking for um the healing road went around and wrote the book the healing road so obviously a very difficult time for him and during that time during this time getty the did his solo album, My Favourite Headache. And eventually, Neil Peart said he wanted to come back. So this album was very much a kind of a, a Neil healing album. Um, and they didn't really have a proper producer. They kind of produced it themselves, but it was all about what Neil wanted. It was very much kind of how to get him back on board, back in the group, you know, back working again, back earning money again, instead of just spending money um, on his motorbike. So this was very much that kind of album, a really kind of a Let's Heal Neil album. And what do you think of it? Not a great deal. I think we've got an hour and seven minutes of this, and I do think it. I prefer it to the previous album, Test for Echo. Um, it is a progression from that, and it is an improvement. But I, d- I don't think it's it's great. It's still a little bit bland overall. I think. I know. I think the band said this was their creative low point. I think I heard that somewhere as well. I do think, like lyrically. And this is, this applies to I think the last couple of albums at at least, if not going a bit more. Like Niels does this sort of wordplay that he keeps doing, which like in Roll the Bones, it's like you know why why are we here because we're here stuff like, and then why does it happen because it happens, and it's like it just starts starting to get a bit annoying. Like on Secret Touch, it's that the way out is the way in, and it's kind of like it's sort of wordplay but not really play. Although I do find with the Roller Bones one, I have my found myself singing it to myself a lot. It is catchy. It is, catch. it is catchy. It's incredibly catchy, is that song. I think I've sung that to myself more than any other Rush song while doing this. And you know, in, that, oh, in Nocturne as well, it's like, did I have the dream or did the dream have me? And it, I think at this point, I'm just getting a little bit tired of some of these plays, this word play that he's, he's doing. I don't think it's quite strong enough, good enough. Yeah, I, I that, do agree with you. Sorry, had you finished? I was just going to say that said. I mean, it's I don't. It's not a terrible album, and it is, as I said, starting to, is growing on me a little bit. But it's it's definitely one of their weaker ones. Yeah, I, I sort of half agree with you. I I, I think if the, the original version was was worse than the the remixed version because it was a very muddy sound, a lot of bass chords, which tend to be quite a, sort of a muddy sound. Don't really show off uh, Geddy Lee's skill at all. It just sort of feels like this blur, blur noise. But yeah, and the, that sort of original production made it just sound really kind of 
the sound wasn't good. It's a bit all over the place. The songs aren't all that great, as you say. Some of them are okay. The, the remix version, which is the one on Spotify, which is our mate Dave Bottrell from uh, Peak Deus fame, he's uh, he comes back and he. I think that the remix version of it is a lot better, and that has really grown on me quite a lot more. So, if we're talking about the remix version, I definitely have a much higher opinion than the the original version. It was a definitely a very good remix and fantastic work by the by the brilliant Dave Bottrell. But yeah, otherwise that I think yeah, it's an interesting album from a sort of Rush historian perspective because it's it's kind of you know it, it is that uh, therapeutic album for Neil. So there is that side of it which is really really important. But from a purely musical perspective, it's pretty mediocre. Yeah, I mean I think the, the other thing I've noticed as well, certainly say with the last four albums, because I've come to these albums later and I've listened to a lot of Muse that these four albums all sound quite heavily Muse-influenced. And I know it's the other way around, and that, you know, Muse, like, Rush, but you can hear it particularly in these four albums. Yeah, I, I guess from now onwards, this and the next two albums, they are really just being a, a rock band again. They've just been a rock trio. They're just rocking out. Um, and, of course, Muse are another power rock trio that's quite with quite heavy bass drum in it as well. So I guess there would be a reasonable amount of similarity there. What tracks would you pick? I would pick one of Ghost Rider, Peaceable Kingdom, The Stars Look Down, Vapor Trail or Freeze. I think they're sort of my top few. I definitely had Ghost Rider as well. So let's put that on. Um, what else did you say? Freeze, Stars Look Down. Vapor Trail, Stars Look Down, Peaceable Kingdom. Stars Look Down, maybe? I do, I do quite like that, Stars Look Down. I also quite like One Little Victory. I'd be okay with One Little Victory as well, if you prefer that. Probably do, I would say. I think Ghost Rider's my favourite song in it, again, but, I mean, there is you know great sympathy for, for Neil Peart at that point, and that's kind of his song, I think. I think Ghost Rider would have been a better name for the album, actually, and themed it around, around lyrically, around his kind of healing road thing. Would have been a, would have been a really nice sort of concept yeah there you go well, i think that is the the theme isn't it Over, overall i know it, it's a bit more open than that but i, I think that's kind of where he comes because the, the albums are generally themed aren't they rather than concept albums yeah the, i mean there is sort of some thematic bits and pieces around things like like roll your bones is you know about the sort of chance and things like that and i mean he's sort of saying that the theme kind of emerges it's not necessarily that deliberate that he just realizes he's writing about the same kind of things making sort of similar kind of points. But, I mean, it'd be hard not to theme this around that whole that period of his life, I guess. Yeah. So where would you rank the album? Well, I would say probably, um, let me see, somewhere around somewhere around Caress of Steel-ish. Probably slightly under Caress of Steel, maybe, or above Caress of Steel, around there. Okay. We're going too high for me, so definitely... Yeah, I suppose I'm talking about the remixed version when I'm saying this. Yeah, I think that's okay, because that's the one that's actually available. So you'd go below Crest of Steel? Definitely. I mean, I think I would have it below, quite, well, quite a bit lower, shall we say. Well, where would you have it? I think probably I'd, I'd like it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so I'm okay with it there. It's in that sort of group of ones. I would put it a bit lower, but it's it's okay. But where, where would you zone. put it? Probably sort of in the fly-by-night area, fly-by-night power windows type. Oh, right. I'd put it above... Um, I think with a few more plays, it might creep up. I, but at the moment, it would be a little bit lower. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that, that is probably 
again, I'm talking about the remixed version. That is kind of where I would put it, where you've got put it there, around the sort of Caress of Steel place. So that's probably where I would put it. But if you want to move it down one to reflect your... Move it below Rush if you want to reflect your view. I'm not that bothered about Rush, so unless we can go below Roll the Bones. I would rather listen to this than Roll Your Bones. I think. Let's just leave it where it is then. It's, it's, in the, it's in the general area. I think I would anyway. I mean, Geddy Lee speaks very highly of Roll Your Bones. He thinks it's really one that worked and was up there in the top, top few albums. Um, but I, And I don't want to disagree with him, but I do. So... Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say Roller Bones is top few, but I, as, as I say, I do like it. I do think it works. It's just, um, I don't think it plays to your, your musical taste anyway. No, it really doesn't. So, Snakes Narrows? So, Snakes Narrows, although they do in between this record their covers album or EP or whatever, um, called Feedback, but we're not covering that. No. So, we go to 2012... They've also that we, we should cool. mention actually. They've also done loads of live albums by this point, but we forgot to keep mentioning them because they used to do them every four albums, and now they're just doing them all the time, like Russian Rio, R Thirty, and all of this stuff. So we've just got bored of mentioning the fact that they're now basically knocking out a live album every single time for every single tour. So we just we just got bored of mentioning them by this point. Yeah, there are there are too many to go through them all. Yeah. It's um, it it is ridiculous. I mean, it's nice of you know. I think ridiculous is a bit harsh. Go and listen. Well, okay. I mean, it's nice that they're there for people to yeah. listen to, but from this point of view for the podcast, it's we don't really need to go there. No, no. So, Snakes and Arrows, what do you think of that one? Well, another new producer, Nick Raskulinich. Is that how you pronounce it? Raskulinich. Raskulinich. A ch at the end. Raskulinich. Is that right? Raskulinich. Something like that. But uh, he's a he's a, a Rush fan and he's a rocker, and you can see quite a lot of this in the snakes in the documentary, which is again available on YouTube about this time. So you can really see them making this album, which is really interesting to watch. And Alex was quite influenced by using a, a lot of acoustic guitar at this point, something he picked up from David Gilmour, who because David Gilmour said if if you can't if the song doesn't sound great as an acoustic, I'll play on the acoustic guitar. It's a crap song, which considering most of David Gilmour's solo output doesn't sound great on an acoustic guitar. It's quite interesting, but but Alex was quite influenced by that, so he started composing and using a lot of acoustic guitar, which you can hear a lot through this album. But I genuinely quite like this album. I think it's pretty good. It's got some really good songs on it. I, l- I do really like the sound. I, I do think Rush have found a good sound for themselves at this period. It is over long. Um, not every song's that great. So it could certainly cut a couple out of there, no problem. But yeah, I think I think they they end well with these last couple of albums. Uh, I do like the sound of them. I do like them. I do think they're pretty strong. Good songs, you know, lyrics. I, I like them. I suppose the only thing I would say, Geddy's voice isn't as good at this point. I think it's you can feel it waning. So there are points where that that struggles for me a little bit. His voice. So that would be my only kind of negative. What about you? What do you think? I pretty much agree with you. I, th- I think that it sounds good. The songs are a, a lot, lot better than the previous two albums. It's just better generally. I think lyrically, Neil's back on form, and it's just yeah. I, I it just think it's good. It's 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 over an hour again, so it is too long. It needs to lose two or three songs. But yeah, I I, I agree. Basically, don't don't have that much uh, to say other than what you've said. I think after the sort of tragedies in Neil's life, by the time they get here. 
they've really kind of settled back down you know the the tension between around sort of use of synths has disappeared so i think by this point they really are a, a kind of a happy bunch and and they always stuck together because they were such good friends and they were so tight and all that stuff so i don't think there was much chance of them ever breaking up even when there was tension but it really does feel like they're a very kind of happy happy band again by this point which is nice i think they've always been harmonious with each other haven't they obviously yeah. the the tragedies that hit neil it was they didn't fall out at any point it was um just neil just didn't want to do it anymore which is understandable obviously i think the, the potential for falling out was more around alex lyson's role and geddy being a bit sort of controlling and alex feeling a bit pushed out i think that was more where there was potential for problem and there was some frustration with neil wanting to tour a lot less and do less but then you know being a drummer's hard work and he was becoming arthritic so obviously it's quite painful for him as well and him being a, a lot shyer Again, he didn't really enjoy the attention of it. So there was a little bit of sort of tension there, perhaps, but, you know, tiny in comparison to the sort of the love and the friendship between them. So what tracks are you going to pick then, fella? Well, there's a few we could pick, really. I think I, I, I like Far Cry, the first one, which is quite musy again. I also like the little instrumental at the end, the malignant narcissism. Yeah, I do as well, yeah. Which is apparently was um, Alex wasn't around, so it was... Uh, Geddy started messing around on the bass and then got Neil playing along and it came from that. They were just like messing around. Yeah, I, I do like that as well. Um, if you want another, I mean, I like that, you know, Armour and Sword is good, Working Them Angels and Bravest Face. Yeah. Would be my next group of few to pick from. Yeah, I probably from. agree with that. Apart from Armour and Sword would be a bit lower for me, but the other ones, yeah, I, I would agree with you. What else do I like? I do like When the Wind Blows. I like pretty much everything on the album, with the possible exception of, of Armour and Sword, would be, the for me, the weakest. But I think probably Far Cry is the strongest song. And apart from that, I'm okay with any of the other ones you said. And if you want Malignant Narcissism, that's okay. To have something a bit different. Because there's three or four, three instrumentals on this, aren't there? There are, yeah. Yeah, I think Hope is a bit weak. Yeah, I agree. But it, I think because they've put it in the middle, though, and it's a little acoustic guitar track it kind of still works it's like a like a little little break in the album yeah and then they get on with it again you could have you could have lost that for me yeah i mean it, getting it down to a normal length of an album that would be where i'd start although it's only two minutes so it wouldn't be that helpful but yeah i would i would take that out well i would probably remove armor and sword which is six and a half minutes so there we're, we're, we're doing all right we've only got 10 minutes there yeah that's doing okay so we've got our two tracks so where do you want to rank the album for me, it's quite similar in quality to uh, Counterpoints. Counterparts. Sorry, Counterparts. Yeah, I don't think it's quite That's, as good. I would put it up. Yeah, I would put it a little bit lower. I don't think it's quite as good as Counterparts. So I would go lower than Counterparts. How much lower? So you've put it below Counterparts, above Grace Under Pressure. I think that I would probably put it below Permanent Waves. I think that's too much. I don't. We could move it under Grace under pressure if you want. Yeah, probably. But I, I think saying it's 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 probably yeah. I probably would. I think permanent waves is is too weak. I think to to be deserved to be above. Well, this album. I, yeah, I'm not sure I entirely agree, but I mean, I think at least. Okay, let, let's stick with that, and then that gives us a little bit more space to muck around with Clockwork Angels as well. The last, the last album, hmm. the end. Yeah, it is quite sad. It is, it is. And I do feel that having spent all this time listening for everything, I'm quite ready now to go see them live. So I do wish they'd uh, 
tour again. Yeah, I'd love to see them live. Obviously, they're not going to, but um, I, would, I would love to see them live. And they didn't tour Europe that much anyway. They were very much just stuck to North America most of the time. So we'd have struggled to see them, even if they were, uh, even if Neil was still around. It would still struggle. Yeah, they come to England a bit. I know on the on the Clockwork Angels tour, they did they did play Sheffield, and I very very nearly did go, but couldn't get somebody to go with me. Uh, I was planning on going. Well, yeah, I would have gone had it been worked out conveniently. But anyway, I, I remember hoping that they would come here uh, to Madrid, but no, they uh, they never did. I don't think they ever played Spain. When they played mainland Europe, it was mainly around Germany uh, and that kind of area most of the time. So didn't really come this far south. But then again, you could go to Toronto and, and go to Alex Lyson's bar and see if he, cause he quite often goes in there and plays with whoever's playing, you know, joins in. All right, well, I, I might do that. I do. I'm planning on going to Canada at some point, so... Yeah, I'd love to go. Might rope that in. Yeah, I'd love to go. and I, I, I would be rather starstruck if I did meet Alex Lyson, so uh, I would probably be a gibbering wreck. But anyway, he's, apparently he's a, a lovely fellow, very approachable. Very, very nice guy. So yes. I'm sure he would uh, be understanding with my rather embarrassing response to him, to his presence. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't talk to him, but it would be nice. Well, I, might, I might try to. I think I would try and get a selfie or something, you know. Anyway, let's go. Where, where are we then? With Clockwork Angels. So it's a sort of a, a Neil so Peart we- steampunk novel. And so this is much more a kind of a concept album, much more of a story being told. What What are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, it is a concept album, isn't it? Although it's... If you listen to it, it's not overly apparent. And I think that's the strength of it. The fact that the songs do, you know, they work completely separately. You don't need to, you don't need the concept. Have you Have you read the no. book or the graphic no. novel? Have you? No, I didn't really know about it until very recently. So uh, I didn't have time to read it. I, I might, um, I might get it. Yeah, I, I don't really like graphic novels. I end up just reading the words and then jumping to the next one and just wishing that it was a proper novel. And I kind of ignore the pictures. Yeah. So um, what about the album? Yeah, I, I do really like it. I think it's a, a step forward from Snakes and Arrows. I think the songs are really strong. I think the thematic thing seems to hold it together a little better. It seems to flow. I, I think it's a, a really kind of strong statement, a really good album. I love the sound of it. The playing is just absolutely outstanding. The voice, again, similar. His voice just isn't as good as it was, so that's definitely a drawback. Uh, I've, I think the concepts helps the lyrics as well. I think that keeps things keeps things on on the straight and narrow. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of this album. I do really like it. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I largely agree. I think it 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 is a little bit the, the variety of styles in it sort of makes it work as well. I don't have a problem with Geddy's voice because you know they do play around his his vocal capabilities. So I I, I don't have a problem with it, and I, I do I don't dislike any of the songs um but yeah i think it's 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 a really really good album and I'm, I'm liking it more and more that i play it as well and also i like the strings in it as well which is something a little bit new yeah that's true actually yeah and and of course they toured with strings as well which was um the first time they'd ever toured with anybody else which also meant they could play losing it from signals one of my favorite songs from signals because they actually had a violinist although they they uh they did get ben mink in for some of them but yeah i the, the strings is a nice touch, but yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really strong album. And from from that sort of nadir in that kind of late eighties, early nineties of thinking, what's the point of Russia? They, to me, they just sound irrelevant now, and they sound lost. By this point, you're thinking, no, they're not. They're just this absolutely brilliant, amazing power rock trio that still sounds fresh and exciting. 
to sort of come through that period and, and come back with material as good as these last sort of couple of albums, I think is great. Yeah, I agree. It'd also be interesting to know what they would have gone on to have done because I do think their last two albums are both very yeah. strong. Yeah. So what, what, what tracks are we going to pick? Um, well, I think for me, the standout track is The Wreckers. Okay. And then I would probably pick Carnies or The Anarchist. I mean, BU2B is up there as well. Yeah, I had BU2B I those up there. I, I do quite like Caravan. I do all. I like uh, Seven Cities of Gold, The Wreckers, uh, Headlong Flight. Bit of a straightforward rocker, but it's very good. Wish them well, the garden. Yeah, I mean, BU2B2, I don't think is necessary. I know Neil thought it was important conceptually, but I think he's wrong. Um, I don't think it's important at all. So I would have dropped that off the album, but... I would probably say BU2B yeah. might be my favourite track, maybe. So I'd be happy with that. And did you say The Wreckers was your favourite? That's right, yeah. So maybe BU2B and The Wreckers? Yeah, I kind of agree about BU2B too. But because it's quite short and, again, quite acoustic, it kind of, I think, works in, in the flow of the album. You see, I think it doesn't for that for that reason. I think it's just it just feels like an oddity that's sort of in the way. It just doesn't feel like it's um, adding much value it's just this little break that just feels like, well, what, what's all that about? Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of a positive and a negative because it is basically just a little break Yeah. rather than adding anything sort of particular. Um, so where are we ranking this? It's going to be higher up. It, it's it's higher than Snakes and Arrows, but I would still probably put it below Counterparts. Where would you put it? Well, it would be above counterparts, definitely. And it's then just how far do you go? I mean, I was just listening to it today and just think, you know, it's great. I would probably put it above 2112. Okay. I would put it there, I think. As high as that? Yeah. And I think even with more fewer... Li- more, sorry, fewer. Obviously, you can't have fewer listens. More listens. I think it's got the potential to go higher. Because I think it is quite, you know, consistent throughout. As I said, I don't... And dislike any of the songs. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm happy with it kind of there. I think it may be slightly overrated, but I would kind of put counterparts on the level with it or even above it. But if you remember, I wanted counterparts slightly higher. So that's, we're probably not in entire disagreement about its place. It's just counterparts is slightly mm. ranked a little low for me. But yeah, okay. Well, we've done it. We got there in the end, fella. Took us months, but we did it. It did, yeah. I looked up, um, I think we've been doing this for five months. Have we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we're still not finished because we've got the the uh, the last segment to do as well. The outro. Where we'll, where outro we will talk bits. about front covers and other things and, and that at the same time. So, well, let's stop there this bit then. And then we'll uh, have another go on holiday again or something and then come back and do the outro. I think you are going on holiday as well, aren't you? Yes, I should be jetting off to Poland, hopefully. So it'll probably be after that. So... Our bottom album is Hold Your Fire. And just above it is Test for Echo. Then Presto. Then 16th is Fly By Night. Then Power Windows. Then 14th is Roller Bones. 13th, their debut album, Rush. 12th is Vapor Trails. Yep, then Caress of Steel. Then Permanent Waves is number 10. So into the top 10, number 9 is Snakes and Arrows. Number 8 is Grace Under Pressure. Number seven is Counterparts. Then A Farewell to Kings is at number six. Fifth is 2112. Then Clockwork Angels, that's number four. Okay, top three, Hemispheres. Then Moving Pictures. And our favourite Rush album is number one, Signals.
Okay, we're back again after another big break. So now we go over the record covers, um, and there's 19 of them. And personally, I'm not a massive fan of most of their record covers. There are a couple I do like. I think it was one person doing most of them, isn't it? Yeah. But I'm not... I think they're okay. I don't sort of hate anything, but I'm not not a massive fan. There are a couple I do like, so I'll, I'll go straight to them. One is Rush, the first album, which I just think right, is... okay. I just like the, the simplicity of it, and it's just a really nice sort of pop art style. Okay. And the other one is kind of very different to that, is Moving Pictures, which I think is is quite classy and clever, and I, I really like that one. Yeah, I, I like both of those as well. Moving Pictures one probably more. I also do quite like the cover of Signals, and also uh, I quite like Snakes and Arrows. I think that's quite a good cover. And I quite like Roll the Bones and Power Windows covers. I would, I would add those. And my least favourite cover is probably actually Test for Echo. That's probably my least favourite. To me, that doesn't work. And then all the others are kind of varied, sort of in the middle, varying degrees. I don't particularly like the cover of Counterparts either. Even that's one of my favourite albums, but I, I don't like it. I think it's a missed opportunity to do a much better cover. But yeah, I, I think there's four or five covers I do really like. And then most of them sort of in the middle. And then there's two or three that I really don't like. Yeah, I, I think I agree. I think Counterparts is quite poor, I agree. I don't particularly like Snakes and Arrows or, what's your form I'm saying, Test for Echo and Vapor Trails. Well, Vapor Trails and Test for Echo, which are, I think, my, my two least favourite Rush albums, I think are probably the two worst covers as well. But there are a I couple. I don't know. Of... I mean, Vapor Trails I don't particularly mind uh, as a cover. I, I, I think Hold Your Fire is very bland cover and there's just there's nothing to say for it so even the other covers that i don't particularly like like say fly by night i don't particularly like that cover but it's all right it's got something about it but there's nothing about the hold your fire it's as bland as the album yeah that's true i think that's the thing the same with counterparts is it's sort of over overly simple yeah and i I think some of them like permanent waves and feral to kings and hemispheres are a little bit overly punny I suppose moving pictures is as well, but it just manages to, to, to just look very elegant. Whereas those other three, they're okay. But I, I, I'm not a mad keen fan on using the album cover to sort of make a pun about different types of permanent waves. A wave, a perm in a hair, etc. Somebody waving. I don't know. I, I just don't think those are particularly great concepts. Yeah, true. But then it works on the following album for moving yeah. pictures. but. Yeah, I, I get that. And Moving Pictures, it works really well. But uh, I think what I like about Moving Pictures isn't isn't, isn't the, the series of puns so much as I do think it's a very elegant cover, a very well-balanced cover. I do think it just looks great. It's just visually really appealing. I think the, the puns are the least, the least about it, but they do seem to work better on that one. Yeah, it's a little bit cleverer. But yeah, Clockwork Angels, I think you were going to mention, but I quite like that cover. But again, it's a little bit too... I, d- I don't mind um, that. It's okay. It's sort of, you know, it's not interesting enough either. But again, it's quite simple. and but it's Yeah, I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It sort of reminds me a little bit of the um, uh, Crest of Steel cover. And I don't know why, but it just seems sort of similar to me. I quite like both of them. I quite do quite like the Crest of Steel cover, actually. Forgot about that one. That probably goes in my list of quite nice covers. So if you're going to say sort of like worst album with the best cover, I'd say Power Windows is the one that's kind of got the least appealing music with the most appealing cover combination. And then sort of the other way around, the sort of best album with the worst cover 
is probably 2112. Not that that's a measure of anything. Because <laughs> I think 2112, again, is a very simple cover, but it is actually quite striking. I think, as again, if you imagine it in a in a record shop up on the wall, you would notice it. Yeah, definitely. Which you wouldn't say with counterparts. You you probably just think somebody hadn't put a record there, and that was just the sort of place saver. It's just so sort of bland and unappealing and unvisually un- interesting. So maybe counterparts then. Really good album with a crappy cover would would be my vote then. Yes, I think I would have to agree with you there because it, it is a great. Album. I've listened since we've uh, done the last recording. I've listened to it a bit more, and I I do like it even more now. Yeah, me too, me too, and and still slightly annoyed by the couple of superfluous tracks on there that would otherwise, I think, make it a just so much stronger tighter album. I don't remember if we discussed that, but per- I think the last song personally lets it down. The rest yeah, I, of it I, I like, but I can't remember whether we discussed it or not. No, no, it's been so many months making this podcast. We've probably repeated ourselves uh, many, uh, many times. But no, I don't mind the, the last song. For me, the speed of love and um, stick it out just feel a bit lost. Well, not, not lost, sorry. They just feel like they're not quite good enough as the rest of the album. But what Martin Popoff said in the books was that Rush never leave anything out. They spent, they work so hard on each song that they won't, there's no store of unreleased material. Hmm. But, but prior to at least Grace Under Pressure, possibly, I don't know, prior to CDs anyway, their albums were shorter. So what were they doing? If they weren't leaving songs out, that suggests that they were putting the same ideas into fewer songs or into fewer minutes of music, which I think is a better discipline because you do end up with albums that are a little bit overlong and they have these songs in there which just aren't quite as good. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good a good discipline to, to stick to, even though obviously not everyone makes vinyl records anymore, but... No, but the sort of time limit of let's not go over that sort of 45-minute thing is is long enough for an album. You might go over it a couple of minutes or whatever, but not going into the kind of, you know, 55, 60, even longer, where it just, you'd be be better editing editing out these stuff. And I I, kind of wish they had, and I think some of these albums, later albums would have been much stronger for having just taken off those couple of weaker tracks. Although that said, they might have picked different tracks to take off. You never know, do you? Well, we would have taken off different tracks off counterparts, wouldn't we? So, well, that's true. So yeah. it, it does it it does show. Although I agree, I think there should be some kind of limit. It's the same with films. Films are too long at the now. Well, There's I don't no need that. to go over two hours. I don't know about that. I think it depends on the film. But let's let's not get sidetracked down that because this this podcast has obviously already been long enough. God knows how long it is. But this is the fourth separate part from our perspective. Yeah, so, I think are we at seven. Let's not break now? off and talk about the movie industry. Is it seven months from? Well, it was going to be about six, and then we um, this got delayed a lot further, so it's not quite as. Uh, so I think we're, we're if we're not quite at seven months, we're not far off. Well, it's we, no one can accuse us of uh, taking this lightly. We've uh, spent an enormous amount of time listening to these albums and reading all these books and watching these movies and stuff about Rush. So we certainly haven't d- done this lightly, and I still feel the list is wrong, but. Never mind. Yeah, me too. But we'll discuss that at the end. I've also um, read another book, which we'll come to a bit later as well. So You've been very strict about this order of um, ceremonies here. So what's next in the agenda after the covers? With the... I've put any other business on the agenda. And seeing as I don't think there is any other business except the fact that I've read this book, I thought we may as well leave it. 
So the, the next one is nominating any extra tracks. So as you've just said, Rush, don't, don't leave anything out. So there's not really anything to nominate for an extra track, except for, obviously, the album that didn't qualify, which is the covers album. But I personally wouldn't be nominating anything off there, because I don't... It's more of um, of academic interest for Rush fans, I would say, rather than being that great. Yeah, I would agree. I, I don't think it adds much, and I've, I'm quite happy not to put on those extra tracks, and I'd rather move straight on to talking about live track. Right then, so let's do that. Because they are such a good live band, or were such a good live band, and unlike many bands, they certainly don't cheat and use Pro Tools or anything like that. They don't even use a click track, so it is all just them playing. Just the rhythm is just you know Neil Peart playing the drums. It's incredible talent to play the way they do, and all the sounds they produce on the stage. They, I mean, they do sample themselves, but they are triggering every single sample themselves the three of them on stage mm. absolutely amazing incredible sort of concentration required and talent and enormous amount of practice dedication but they ended up producing some absolutely brilliant live work and, and in the 90s in particular it's sort of like from just doing a live album every four years they just went bonkers didn't they and they were just chucking out live stuff like nobody's business so you must have some good ideas for live tracks you don't nod this is a podcast yeah. fella well, you have to speak the way I went, because there, there is a lot of live material out there. So I basically went with the system of looking for live versions of tracks that I quite liked and thought, use that as a way of kind of squeezing them into the onto the playlist. So the first one I tried to get was The Weapon, but there's only one live version of it and I don't really like it, so I'm not, not nominating that. So I came up with Tom Sawyer from Exit Stage Left, and from a show of hands, distant early warning. So there are okay. two nominations. Yeah, well, distant early warning from that concert show of hands was really good. I, I took a slightly different route because I thought there's too many live albums here, and just too much to choose from. So I'm going to limit it. So I limited it to Russian Rio, and the reason I did that was because I thought that was just such a sort of emblematic gig, the first time they'd been to South America. The, they did this the, probably the biggest concert they ever did in terms of the biggest audience and the audience was so into it you know it was just the audience were crazy and, and singing along to YYZ and all of that even though it's an instrumental and it was just such a sort of it's just so so brilliant just to see people going so crazy for Rush at that point so I just thought well I'll just limit, to the, limit it to just that album and I picked off three things from that album which were YYZ, just because I just love that, the, the crowd going so mad over it. Leave that thing alone, because I do think it's a pretty good instrumental and we haven't got it anywhere else. A New World Man, and the reason I put that on there was it was that version of it that made me really go back and look at and think, wow, this track's much better than I thought, because it, I think it's really powerful live. So I was kind of hoping I could get New World Man on and then swap it out for my signals selection so then we could either put the weapon on if you prefer that or i was going to fight the digital man okay we've already got yyz as well yeah that's why i said i was going to fight the new world man yeah but okay well what i was going to say about yyz or or we could or we could put yyz on and swap that out with something else i suppose although yyz is so great i think you could probably stand listening to it twice well we could well we can put two live tracks on of course 
Well, I think we haven't actually set a limit, have we, on live tracks? But I think we usually just try and do two. Well, there you go then. So we could do the YYZ because it is such a great version. But, well, if we're only picking two and we've got five nominations, I think we should probably drop YYZ out, unless you want to swap it. And the same for New World Man. I'm happy to put well, New World Man on and we'll change the pick a different track of Signals. Yeah, let's do that then. Put New World Man and pick a different track of Signals. Because it is our top album as well. Yeah. And then, if you want to pick one of your two live tracks then, so they're not both from Russian Rio. Well, should we go with the Distant Early Warning? Because that was the one you were yeah. most in favour of as well. So, to replace Signals, sorry, New World Man off, off our playlist then. Well, if you remember at the time, we were battling, I was battling between New World Man and Digital Man. They were my two choices. And in the end, we went with New World Man. Yes. Because I, th- I think Analog Kid was your choice, although it was actually my choice as well, because we both agreed in Analog yeah. Kid. So I would prefer Digital Man. Yeah, I would have picked The Weapon, but I do like Digital Man as well, so I'm f- I am fine with that. Right, well, there we go then. That's that sorted. Excellent. So that's, um, that's done. So our playlist is a snappy four hours, 16 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> And worth listening to, because even of the worst albums, there's still some pretretty good tracks, so yeah, I think we're I think persevering with pr- pretty much all albums have have decent tracks in, probably the exception to that I don't well yeah, um vapor trails, I'm not sure there's anything that really worth listening on. Why did we get vapor trails so high up then? I've no idea, I think you were singing for it because i I sort of have it quite low, oh oh no, I think it was because the remixed version was i I thought much, much better than the original version. And it had... And it just kind of was meaningful because of, obviously, what Neil Peart had been through. And I think it's it did have some pretty good top tracks on it, even though the I think the average was very low. But it is probably too high, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, I, I what think were we is. thinking? Yeah. Should we move I'll it down? We, I, don't, I, I think I'd have it second bottom, you know. Let's move in, it down. In my personal ranking. Let's move it down to, I'd say... Above Presto, but below Fly By Night. So we need to redo the list. I don't think we do, because it's a little bit tiresome. So we've moved Vapor Trails down to 15th. So if anyone wants to look, they can go to the playlist and well, see where we've put it. Yeah, OK. All right. But that, the list we read out, there's obviously a bit it has been changed. But no, never mind. These things happen. Things change, fella. So we've now reached the much-anticipated any other business section. I don't have any other business. Yeah. Do you? Do you have any other business? Yes. Thank you for asking, oh. fella. I've read another book, and it was the novel novelization of Clockwork Angels. Ah, okay. Which is by Kevin J. Anderson, and it's a steampunk fantasy novel, basically. And uh, I, I did quite enjoy it, I have to say. And I obviously I've listened to the album after that as well, and it kind of makes more sense it does make you appreciate it more so unless you're really anti-steampunk fantasy novels i would recommend reading it i've never read the steampunk fantasy novel no i, I haven't. actually don't i don't know what would what would classify something as steampunk i know what fantasy and novel mean it, it's just kind of a mixture isn't it of sort of old and new i don't know don't know what it is and you don't either obviously but i don't know i kind of know what it is but don't really know how to describe it it's, it's kind of when it's fantasy but rather than having incredible technology like on Star Wars, 
sorry, Star Trek, where they've got the scanners that tell you exactly what's wrong with you. It's more old-fashioned technology, but put together. Right. So, like things like they've got airships and things. The technology, a lot of the technology, isn't particularly advanced. Although there is some fantasy elements of like magic and stuff in it as well. All right, Al- alchemy and things in it. But uh, so, what is it called, Clockwork Angels? It is, and. So is it, it's obviously not by Neil Peart. It's, it's just not. Neil Peart wrote, inspired, this novel inspired Neil Peart to write the concepts and lyrics of the album. Is that correct? No, it's the other way around. Neil, ah. well, Neil Peart was, is friends with Kevin J. Anderson and they have been meaning to do something together. And then they got together and, and Neil gave him the basics of the story that he had. And then Kevin Anderson took that and developed it and they basically worked on it together and sort of did developing and Kevin Anderson actually wrote it but the the story and the development is very much with with Neil Peart okay there is a bit in the back which explains all that and he tells you like where a lot of the things come from and the names and and some of the inspiration for some of the things oh well that's something I might put that on my list of of uh, things to read yes do so it's quite an easy read as well it's not it's not it's not that long either any other any other business then I don't think I have anything else. Well, it does seem like that's the end of Rush. And it doesn't look like Eddie and Alex are going to restart Rush, although they may still do something together, although I know Alex Lyshen suffers from arthritic hand as well. or So he struggles to play for long periods of time. Mm. But I still have the ambition to go to Toronto and go to his bar and train, because he does pop in quite a lot and play live there with whoever's playing. So And some quite good stuff on YouTube within there, so... Yeah, hopefully we will see them again at some point. Yeah, I think Alex's bar has actually closed down now. How was it? I think so because after you you said this at some point in a chat, and I looked it up, and it said that it closed down. So hopefully it'll open another one. Oh, I didn't know that. Blimey, that's bad news. But I think Alex and Geddy have both confirmed that Rush are no more. There will be nothing. Yeah, yeah. Under the Rush name, which to be fair is. You know, obviously they they would have the right to carry on with the name, but they, they wouldn't. It wouldn't be Rush. Alex does have a solo project coming out very shortly. Yeah, I've seen that on his website. There's a couple of bits on his website um, about that. His website's very up to date. So hopefully we'll see more of Alex. Well, as you said, we will. He's got a solo project coming out. Yeah, I it just says it's out. Something um, it just says it's out this autumn, doesn't it? So there's no actual yeah. date yet. Well, I quite liked Victor the album i didn't particularly like the vocals but apart from that i did quite like the album and i did quite like geddy lee's my favorite headache as well i thought they were both pretty decent albums so i hope both of them continue to do something and oh, i hope he well. reopens his bar in toronto yeah I'd be very hopefully. disappointed if i got there and it wasn't even wasn't it had been closed down that will be i'll probably do a bit of research before flying to toronto but yeah geddy's also announced that he's do, he's written an autobiography as well which is out in about a year at time of recording Oh, right. We'll definitely read that as well. So quite a lot. So there are still some things for Rush fans to get their teeth into coming up, which is good news. So I guess we should end there, really. And going by the pace we seem to work at, um, we should be able to discuss those two projects in the Jeffrey Report for the series anyway. Yeah, probably, yeah. So tune in for that end of Series 2. There will be a second Jeffrey Report podcast which goes over all the whatever news there's been in any of the bands we cover in that particular series or previous series as well yeah so sort of Jeffrey alumni essentially we discuss any any updates so let's end there anyway because this is obviously a massively long 
So, until the next time. He's nodding again. It's a bloody podcast, fella. You've got to speak. I wasn't nodding. I didn't feel we needed to add a few more seconds onto the podcast by me saying...